Marilyn Monroe rose to Hollywood fame despite her broken childhood and the desperate search of parental figures. But before Marilyn, there was Norma Jean, the young woman exploited by everyone during her short life. Today, we'll break down how Norma's childhood and early career years shaped who she was to become. This is the story of Marilyn Monroe. Detective Unit, welcome to another multi-parter. Today, we are starting the story on Marilyn Monroe. This is going to be a three-parter series. I have said that before and then have extended it to four parts, I know. For now, the way I plan to structure this is going to be a long part one, and then I believe part two and three are going to be a bit shorter. But you are here with me for quite some time, because this story has intrigued me for the longest time. I really wanted to look into it, and I had it on the list of respective cases. And then I've seen the trailer with Anna de Armas playing Marilyn. I think the movie is called Blonde. It's gonna be on Netflix. I was like, you know what? It's time. It's time for me to buy the book. It's time for me to read 700-something pages. And then also to look up online archives of Marilyn and also look up multiple articles, because this is one of those stories where somebody could really sit and talk about Marilyn's life for 200 hours and still not even scratch the surface. So let me tell you what the structure is going to be like, because we are not going to be here for 200 hours, but I still really want you to understand the psychology of Marilyn, where she was mentally at the end of her very short life. And for us to do that, in part one, we're going to be covering most of Marilyn's childhood and also her early career years and her free marriages. Then, in part two, we're going to be covering the end of the marriage with Arthur Miller. We're going to be, in particular, speaking of her career, covering Misfits and her role there and how it affected her what was happening behind the scenes in her life in the last two years of it, and then circumstances surrounding her death. And part three will be solely focused on the Kennedys and the conspiracy theories surrounding Marilyn's death. So how we're going to do that without sitting here for 200 hours and maybe just only limiting it to like six, which is the usual length for my multi-parters. I'm going to be telling you the context of the period I'm talking about, so sort of give you the idea of what was going on in each period of Marilyn's life, and then I will put you in the point of view of a particular person in Marilyn's life. So today we are going to be going into a couple of points of view, probably the most out of all of these videos. In part two, we're going to be going into points of view of two other people in Marilyn's life, and then part three will probably just be conspiracy theories, unless I figure out how to structure it in the exact same way. Why we are doing that, and if you can think about, like, oh, you can't possibly give us the point of view, you weren't in those people's shoes. You see the book behind me? Donald Spottel. I will play an interview with him in part two as well, because I, I love this man. This is one of the best books, biographies out there, and he has written biographies of many other people. I am pretty sure this man had something to do with psychology. Whether he studied it, whether he just understands it and he just can read any freaking room, because what this book gave me, it's about 700 pages long, I'm not gonna lie to you, it is the longest book I have ever read in my life. However, what it gives you is like 
You know, when you have that thought process, when you are trying to understand, like, oh, why? Why is somebody doing this in this exact situation? Well, in the next paragraph, Donald literally answers it for you. I was like, I appreciated that. Let's just, let's just put it that way. I appreciated that because it helped me understand Marilyn and the dynamics of everybody in her life, everybody that he had spoken with. So, if you think, like, oh, you can't possibly understand it, read that book. I'm just saying, listen to this series and then read the bloody book. If you are interested in Marilyn and her life, that is the book. That is the go-to. I have looked at multiple ones online, at their reviews, at, like, what they're focusing on. But for how I like to cover these cases, Donald Spoto's biography is the book to read on Marilyn. Just to set expectations, because I have learned the hard way that you should tell people what they should expect before they dive into a series that is over six hours long, usually, in my cases. I don't want you to think that this is another entertainment coverage. If you are new to the channel, well, come please like and subscribe. I do like to do deep dives, but this is mostly a true crime channel. So, I will not be covering the whole of Marilyn's career, everything that she had ever done in terms of movies, in terms of photo shoots. I will be putting you into the context of where she was in that period of her life and how that looked, but expect more behind the scenes. Dynamics with the crucial people in Marilyn's life. I can't possibly cover the dynamics between Marilyn and everybody she had ever known. So, just an FYI before you dive in, and obviously it has been upon me to choose who I believe according to the book, and after reading the book and multiple articles online, who those crucial people that have left the most impact on Marilyn's life are. So you might not agree with that, or you might completely agree with me and be like, oh yeah, this person did a number, did a number on Marilyn. And I like to know, after each partner, what you think in terms of where Marilyn was at that point in her life, where she was mentally, and, like, do you agree or disagree with me in terms of what those people did to her, how they affected her? Because this is actually a really, really sad story. I did not expect to get this emotional reading this book and just researching Marilyn's story. I had no idea about... 90% of the things that I will be telling about just today, just in part one, I had no clue about just how insane her life was, how hard her childhood was, and how she just went spiraling at some point, and there was no point of return. Just There was just no going back. And there are probably many other YouTube channels, podcasts out there that do this differently, that tell you everything about her modeling career, to tell you everything about her movie career, and just literally cover Marilyn from that angle. This isn't one of those places. That being said, our story begins actually long, long before Marilyn was even born, because we are starting it with her great-grandparents, Tilford and Jenny. If I were to describe the personal life of anybody in Marilyn's family in one word, the word would be transient. Born into nothing, Tilford, her great-grandfather, would work on a family farm since he was 12. This would be 18,000. So, in 1870, when he was 19 years old, he lived in Missouri, which is where he will meet Jenny. Now, to support her, and by 1878, then three of their children, he would work miserable 
hours, like long hours, miserable wages, as a day laborer. And the life was always on the move. They would always move between different farmhouses, log cabins, shared barns. Tilford would, however, still, in any free time that he had, teach himself how to read, and then he would read the classics. The marriage lasted for about 20 years, and we're not sure why, but Tilford and Jenny would divorce. Jenny took her children, and she would return to her mom in Sheraton County. And Tilford would really be heartbroken, because Jenny took the children away. And also, he suffered from multiple diseases, because he was a laborer, he would do hard labor, he was poverty as well, the medicine in 18,000s just wasn't really anything like modern medicine today, and because of the loneliness, as he was deprived from the kids, and they visited rarely, he was already in really bad health condition. Now, the liveliest one of those kids that would visit Tilford very rarely was Della May Hogan. Now, Della would be Marilyn's grandmother. She was described as not pretty, but gay and mischievous, habitual truant. Instead of school, Della liked fishing and swimming, different extracurricular activities, and she used family's barn for a kiss-me-quick. She liked to kiss boys in the neighborhood. Her parents would separate when she was only 13 years old, and she spent the following years traveling between Jenny and Tilford. But by the age of 15, she was out of school. She was shuffling back between the parents, and by the age of 22, she met a guy called Otis Monroe. This would be 1898, and Otis would be about 10 years older than Della. Now look at this bitch, look at Della, look at her face. She has already experienced the transient life that her parents offered. She didn't want to have a kid and for the kid to do the exact same thing, just go between the parents. She wanted something better for herself as well. So, when Otis offered that, when Otis was the type of person who actually wanted more than manual labor himself, he decided to study in France, and she saw a prospect of a better life. So soon after their wedding, Otis and Della packed up their suitcases and they moved to Mexico. He got a job at Mexico National Railway, and Della in Piedras Negras would settle as a midwife, and she was also the unofficial teacher for Mexican women in the area. Soon enough, in 1901, in Piedras Negras in Mexico, Della would fall pregnant, and in 1902, she gave birth to Gladys, who would be Marilyn's mom. They soon enough realized, okay, we don't really want to raise kids here. We want to go back to the U.S. So they traded their life to life in the L.A. and moved back to California. This is where Gladys would, with her parents, move around yet again through at least 11 rented apartments between 1903 and 1909. And what this did for Gladys, and what you will see in Marilyn's life as well, is it didn't really allow for them to form any significant friendships with boys or girls, nor did it allow the family, and especially the kid, to form any strong relationships. They just always had to be ready to pack up their bags and move to the next house. Otis, however, started struggling with some headaches. He had memory lapses, he... Those memorlapses would result in fits of rage, and then, in 1908, he became semi-paralyzed. 
what he actually suffered from was neurosyphilis. Now, the book doesn't really explain this much, like it explains what it is on the surface, but a quick Google search would tell you that neurosyphilis is a disease of the coverings of the brain or the spinal cord, and it occurs in people who have syphilis, especially if it's left untreated. Why is that important? Because there was no drug developed for that time where we are speaking about, so in 1909, Otis ended up dying at the age of 43. Because neurosyphilis stems from syphilis, like one doesn't happen without the other, at least from what I understand, it makes me think either Otis might have been unfaithful to Della, or Della might have been the person to pass him on the disease. And why that matters, at least in my head, and I haven't seen it mentioned before, is because Della, like every reasonable human, would tell the kids that their dad, Otis, had gone mad and died a lunatic. So Gladys and then obviously the grandchildren, including Marilyn, would have this idea that Otis might have had mental health issues, where he didn't. He died of organogenic disease, not psychogenic. And that's where I kind of have to think, like, what really happened? Did she just do it out of spite? Did she actually know? Or did she just blatantly lie and didn't think that that would do any lasting damage on those children? So, to cope with her husband's death, Della resorted to bringing kids to church, but also seeking another man. And this is when, in the book, the author would mention how Gladys used to say, Mama liked men, and we all wanted a papa, which, in a nutshell, can summarize the whole Monroe family, especially how women had seen that whole situation as they were bringing themselves up. Rather, as the parents were there passively bringing them up, but they would always see the mother figure constantly looking for men, for validation from men, and all of the women in the family, all the daughters, constantly just wanted a stable father figure. It happened with Gladys, and it will happen eventually with Marilyn. Della didn't wait for long, and in 1911 she met a guy called Lyle, soon enough they were married. The marriage didn't really last for long, and they would divorce by 1914. However, this is what the book says how Gladys might have actually felt at that time. For Gladys, on the edge of young womanhood, men were impermanent, unreliable transients. At the same time, her mother's conduct implied that men were also in some way necessary to a woman's life. Bella continued to enjoy, indeed required, male companionship. Her daughter was then receiving mixed signals about marriage, family, and parenthood. However, as much as Gladys was only being able to see what Della would portray, how she would meet men, and then the transient lifestyle, she would be careful. She would argue with Della about this. She would not be shy and would really show how displeased she was with her living situation. Which meant that Della didn't really like that. So her idea of how to, again, reasonably deal with this situation would be to marry Gladys. Not just marry her, because bear in mind, at this point, Gladys was 14 years old. She would meet a guy called John Baker. This man would be 26-year-old businessman. 
Some sources state that he was just like a gas meter reader. It depends on the biographers. He was from Kentucky. And in 1917, Gladys' mom, Sodella, decides she must meet this guy. She's dissatisfied. This is her way out of the family home. But she's also 14. So she decides to falsely claim that her daughter is 18 years of age. She said there's no birth certificate or anything really proving that because they just arrived to California from Oregon. So just like that, Gladys in 1917 would marry John Baker at the age of 14, while her mom is faking that she's actually of age. Seven months later, Gladys would give birth to a son called Jack. And then, in 1919, he would be followed by her daughter, Bernice. As Gladys witnessed this transient lifestyle that her parents had displayed for all of these years, she only knew how to apply that to how she raised her own children. By the time she had Bernice and Jack, Gladys was also only 17. Not cutting her any slack, obviously, like her mom married her when she was 14. It's truly messed up, but she was more interesting in just going out, going to the dance halls, cleaning it up, and also kind of just leaving those kids behind, in the care, really, of anybody else. The marriage also wouldn't last for long. Her marriage would break down by 1921, and she would file for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty by abusing and calling her vile names, and using profane language at and in her presence by striking and kicking. Pay attention to this reasoning, and I'm mentioning it, because it comes back later in some form in Marilyn's life. John Baker, however, didn't really like this, let's just say, and it was the time when men really had more power when it comes to how the divorce proceedings would go about. So Gladys moved out of their home and went to share a bungalow with her mom and the kids. However, John managed to take the kids. According to different biographers, some say he kidnapped them, like he actually just went in, took the kids, and then moved to Kentucky. And for whatever reason, Gladys wasn't able to get the kids back. So she would go to Kentucky and visit them. It was said she did this infrequently. And then she lost touch with them altogether. In this timeline, Marilyn still hasn't been born. But just so you know, because of this dynamic, because of John taking the kids away from Gladys, Marilyn was not told that she had a sister until she would be 12 years old. And she would only meet Bernice at some point as an adult. So Gladys is still living now on her own. She sometimes lives with Della, and she finds herself a job. So she worked at this place called Consolidated Film Industries. Her job at this place would be to just be inside of a lab, be with her gloves on, and then develop the film roles. And those would then be shared with directors and producers for reviews. So it would just be literally dealing with reels. It would be quite a menial job. So soon enough, there, Gladys strikes up a friendship with a supervisor called Grace. And within months, the two of them would start living together in Silver Lake, district of LA. 
Gladys was quite popular with her colleagues, this is why her and Grace made close friends, and she was newly divorced, really, in 1921, and then from that point on, for the couple of years, she would be known as a barfly, according to her colleagues, meaning that her and Grace would usually just hit the bars and drink a lot. So, at some point, she meets a guy called Martin Mortensen, and he proposes to her, she finally accepts, she wants to settle down again, and this would be in 1924. Mortensen, by all accounts, had a steady job, he was handsome, but Gladys really... it just seemed like she said yes just for the sake of it. Four months later, she was back living with Grace, and the divorce was to follow. Freshly divorced again, and in her 20s still, Gladys would go back to Grace, and they would still go out, they would meet men and have fun. So, technically, at this point, Gladys isn't seeing anybody. Her divorce proceedings have already taken place. But then, in late 1925, she becomes pregnant again. And when she went into the hospital to give birth to Norma Jean, her third child, she would end up listing her first two kids as dead. At this point, no longer living with Grace, separated from her husband, and cited in a divorce petition, she would turn to her mother, Della, for help. And I can't tell you if this is Gladys's decision, or if this was influence from Della, but Mortensen would be listed as Norma Jean, who would become Marilyn, as her father. However, this brings us to the question of who Marilyn's father really was. Most people at the time thought that she was the product of an affair, and in 2022, those people would be proven right. So, a lot of people suspected different co-workers that Gladys worked with, among them one guy called Charles Gifford. He would be the foreman of the day shift at Consolidated Film, and he was separated from his wife at the time, in 1923, and the divorce was granted in 1925. He was known as handsome and arrogant, known at home and at work as a philanderer, a designation of which he was frankly proud. His wife's uncontested divorce petition noted that he shamelessly boasted of his conquests with other women, and among them, with, and among them was Gladys Baker. Gladys would never publicly nor privately state that Gifford was Marilyn's dad, and you can see why. There must have been some shame involved, she was still going through divorce proceedings, and to just state that she might have had a child with her co-worker would have been heavily judged back in the day. But in 2022, DNA testing did prove that Charles Gifford was indeed Marilyn's dad. However, Marilyn, throughout her whole life, didn't know that. She was in constant pursuit of her father. As for the child, she never met Gifford, and was never certain he was her father. To be sure, she would end up trying to contact one or two men that she said might have been her father. And Gifford, by all accounts, as it will come later in the story, might have been one of them. But the accounts of her attempts at a meeting are just contradictory, as you will hear later on, as we go into one of the points of view. Now, evidence that Charles Gifford was her father 
was just lacking at the time until they have obviously conducted DNA tests. And when Gladys would be asked about him, she would say, but Gifford is the father only God knows. However, the baby, Norma Jean, was born on 1st of June 1926 at 9.30 a.m. in the LA General Hospital. The birth certificate would identify her as the daughter of Gladys Monroe. She would add that the residence of her husband, a baker she designated as Edward Mortensen, was unknown, and the child's birth registration in the California Board of Health's Bureau of Vital Statistics stated that her name was Norma Jean Mortensen. In her youth, she would be known as Norma Jean Baker, and from the age of 20, she was Marilyn Monroe. But she declined to make that her legal name until about seven years before her death. In her youth, Norma Jean would always look at a picture of this handsome young man with a mustache on, and this would be the picture that her mother kept at her place. And Gladys would tell her that this is the picture of her dad. So, in this wishful thinking world that Norma was stuck in, this person was actually her father. She believed that when she would walk home from school, or when she would be stuck at the hospital, when her tonsils had to be removed, that this person is just going to be picking her up, waiting for her to get home. Marilyn would write, I could never get him in my largest, deepest daydream to take off his hat and sit down. This would set the precedent for the rest of Marilyn's life, because her whole life she would want to A, meet her dad, figure out who he really was and have a relationship with him, and B, she would always be looking for a surrogate father in any man that she would date. And as you will see later, this would just spiral. It would go out of control as her health would go downhill, where in the 1940s and 50s, she would attempt to search for her dad at least two times. So, before that, before we dive into the story of how Marilyn displayed this for her life, how she dated a man that in some form she saw as father figures, we have to start from the beginning. And less than two weeks after Marilyn was born, Gladys took her to live with a foster family called the Bolenders. This is the family where we would know most about when it comes to Norma Jean's childhood, because Marilyn later in life would give interviews on them. The question that might pop into your head is why? Why, after how she was brought up, why now that she has a job, Gladys has a job, she has a friend, she has some support system, she has a place to live, why would Gladys send her two-week young daughter to a foster home? So, to give her the benefit of the doubt, to play the devil's advocate, this would have been 1920s. It's time of prohibition. Drugs would be widespread, and also Gladys's lifestyle might mean that she just can't comfortably raise a child. She had seen her own dad's health deteriorate, she was told how he died, Della neglected her, so maybe psychologically she saw that she might hate the child of the same sex, the way Della might have hated her. 
However, you could maybe see this as Gladys being selfish, who just, with the slightest nudge of her friend Grace, decided to place her daughter into foster care. She had her full-time job, she would still go out and party, and she had the money to pay for foster care. So she also might have had the money to actually raise this daughter herself. Maybe just like with her first two kids, Gladys decided that Norma Jean should become somebody else's problem. Let me know, I would really be interested to know what do you think of this decision. Because for the life of me, I can't explain it in a reasonable way. Like, there's a whole paragraph about, you know, how hard it was to live in the 1920s, how it wasn't all great and, like, poverty-stricken people. But she had a job. She had a place. And you kind of have to think that in the dynamic in relation to John taking kids already away from her and how she was even with those two kids visiting them very infrequently, how she wasn't really a present parent and how she just decided to take this kid who's two weeks old to a foster family. This will be where Marilyn would on and off stay for about seven years. She would say that her mother would still visit, but when she did, she never smiled, never kissed her, never cuddled her, and even hardly spoke to her. So let's speak about the Bolenders and where Marilyn was actually staying. In short, Blenders actually lived, from what I gather, just down the street from Della, so from Marilyn's grandmother. Which, yet again, why didn't she stay with Della? Why didn't she stay with the family member? Marilyn's life with Blenders was strange, to say the least. They were quite a religious family. And they were poor. Like, in fact, maybe Gladys and Della were more well-off than the Bolenders. From what I gather, the father of the family was a mailman, and then Ida, the mother, well, she would take other foster children. So it was that type of foster care where, like, other children, not just Marilyn, would come in and out, and then, obviously, this would have affected this girl. Like, the presence of her mom just was almost non-existent. She would visit sometimes on the weekends, and even that wouldn't be reliable. It depends what Gladys was up to that weekend. And also then to see, like, other kids move in and out must have really already done a number when it comes to Marilyn. And then you have to think about that whole dynamic of who are her parents and why that was such a deep-rooted issue for Marilyn to find that out. Because, well, Gladys never wanted her to call her her mother, like when she would see her on the weekends. And when she would call Ida, the foster mom, mom, well, she would politely tell her to call her aunt instead. Actually, she was. You see, when I was very young, um, I called every woman I would see, I'd say, oh, there's a mama. And if I, see a, if I would see a man, I'd say, there's a daddy. Or Papa, I guess you say in French. So, to learn that, that she was my mother uh, was quite a shock, you know. It was the woman with the red hair. The people <clears throat> I was staying with, I was about three. And um, one morning I was having a bath, actually. And uh, I referred to the woman as mama, and she said, I'm not your mother. 
This lifestyle further must have left the imprint and rather confusion in young Norma Jean's life because of how different it was. Um, Ida and Bolenders in general were quite religious, so for them, drinking, dancing, smoking, playing cards, those were works of the devil. And then just being clean, order, discipline were signs of virtue. Children would be calmly told what to do and what not to do. However, then, when she would go out to spend the day with her mom, her mom would usually bring her to the movies. And the Bolenders would really judge that. They would say, if the world came to an end with you sitting in the movies, do you know what would happen? You'd burn along with all the bad people. We are churchgoers, not moviegoers. To cope with this confusion, Marilyn would resort to fantasies. She would later tell to a biographer that she dreamed that she was standing up in a church without any clothes on, and all the people there were lying at her feet on the floor of the church as she walked naked, with a sense of freedom, being careful not to step on anyone. But she knew, then and there, that only a bathtub was a legal, licit place to be naked in this kind of household. So, as her mom would be bringing her to the movies, Norma really started loving this experience. Obviously, she would have preferred anything to just cleaning the house of her foster home. However, she would actually have her first appearance much earlier than people might have thought. And this would be at a religious ceremony for Easter in 1932, so she was only about six years old. This would be at the Hollywood Bowl. She said that, you know, this is obviously Bolander's brought her there, and she would kind of just step up in a black robe and she was given a signal to throw off the robe, change the cross from black to white. But she got interested in looking at the people, the orchestra, the stars in the sky, and she forgot to watch for the signal. So there she was, the only black mark on a white cross. And the family that she was living with, the Bolenders, never forgave her. Never forgave her for this performance, never forgave her for embarrassing them like that. In the interviews in her later life, Marilyn would see Bolenders for who they really were. Like, she would never hold grudges. That's something that you should really learn about Marilyn. She never really held grudges against people. She would just see it differently and then move on. So, she would say that the Bolenders were strict. That they didn't mean any harm, that it was just their religion. But they did bring her up harshly. However, for seven years, they always instilled in her that attitude of she's never enough. Whatever she was to do, it's never good enough. She was always failing at something. Something always had to be improved. While she was with Bolenders, when she was only about one year old, the different biographies state that there might have been yet another incident, where Della, her grandmother, tried to smother her with a pillow. So, this might be a good time to go back to Dawa and just wrap that up, because she clearly had some declining health issues at this period of time, and that also might explain why Marilyn was never staying with her. 
So according to a version of events by Donald Spoto, by the writer of the book, Della's behavior was never caused by any mental illness. Rather, she had a heart disease, and that heart disease, yet again, because there was no modern medicine, because there was no medication to treat it correctly at the time, caused acute depressions. She would be prescribed medications for those, but those caused Della to resort to fantasy world, to euphoric states, and eventually hallucinations. What this meant was that by July 1927, Della was convinced that death was near. This led to different memories associated with hallucinations. So she struggled from her home, which we know was just down the road from the Bolenders, walked over to their house to see her granddaughter and banged on the door. Angered, when she saw that nobody came to the door, Della ended up breaking the door's glass with her elbow. According to the book, that was the extent of it, and Ida was there, and they actually called the police. So, nothing really alarming happened to Marilyn, and Marilyn was at this point only one year old, so she doesn't remember this incident. However, after this, Della would end up being hospitalized. And after 19 days of just agony, just hallucinations, just pain, she would die on 23rd of August 1927 at the age of 51. The death certificate would give the cause of death as simply myocarditis, so the heart disease. However, Gladys would never accept this. She would always think that her mother died of psychosis, but this was baseless because there was never a psychological profile done on Della, she never visited a neurologist, there was never anything indicated that she might have died of mental health illness. She died of heart disease, but for Gladys, she now saw everybody in her family having some mental health issues. Partially because Della lied to her about her dad, about Otis, dying from a psychogenic disease rather than just organogenic, as we know. So now she saw both of her parents and their health decreasing, but she always thought it was associated with mental health issues. Up until 1933, Norma Jean was living with the Bolenders, and she would only move in with Gladys then, and it was said that she was just recovering from a whooping cough, so, I don't know, instead of taking her to the movies and then to the foster home, Gladys actually took her home, and then she just decided, okay, she might as well stay with me. That's how the book makes me feel that kind of account of events went on, and honestly, it wouldn't really surprise me. And her life with her mom, let's just say, it wasn't really the best, the most stable, she wasn't really the best role model. And it started really traumatic. Something that you might know about Marilyn is that she really had a sensitive side. She really cared for animals. She would have different dogs throughout her life. And that was actually inspired because of a dog called Tippy. So, Tippy was this black and white dog that was given to Norma Jean by her foster dad, Wayne Bolander, the guy who was a mailman and from the foster home. Now, Tippy would always follow her around, he would go to school with her and then wait and play with her when she was at recess. However, then Norma Jean, when she was only about six, witnessed this dog being shot by a neighbor. 
and the neighbor just claimed that the dog was rolling around in his garden. She would say in her autobiography that the neighbor cut Titi in half with a hoe. So, I'm not really sure what happened here. Was this man ever charged for killing a freaking animal? But this obviously marked Marilyn for life and inspired her to really care about other orphans, really, throughout her life, like other people who were in more precarious and more sensitive positions, but also especially, especially animals. This just goes to show also where was Gladys, what was she doing with most of her life when Norma Jean was in her care, because Marilyn's life under her mom was also just containing a lot of visits to the movies. So, further, love for movies was inspired as she lived with her mom in Afton Place. Marilyn would say about this, there I'd sit all day and sometimes way into the night, up in front, there with a screen so big, a little kid all alone, and I loved it. I didn't miss anything that happened, and there was no popcorn either. So suddenly, she goes from the family of churchgoers to the family of moviegoers. And this family, run by Gladys and Gladys herself, well, managed to move into a new home. So due to President Roosevelt's assault on the Great Depression, homeowner loan corporations was instituted, and there were some low mortgage costs that were available which Gladys took full advantage of, and she took a loan and got them moved into a three-bedroom furnished house. This would be in Arbol Street, close to Hollywood Bowl. So, Marilyn would just constantly be sitting in movies as Gladys and Grace worked at Consolidated. And also, to pay this rent off, Gladys would rent out the whole house, actually, to a married couple. And this couple was an English film actor George Atkinson and his family. So, Marilyn was just constantly surrounded by people who were in the movie industry from her early life, and also the only way of entertainment that she had known up until this point was just going into movies, as Gladys and Grace worked at the labs. When she would enter schools, she would be registered as Norma Jean without the E in the end, which is how her name was actually on the birth certificate, and Gladys and Grace probably started comparing her early on, based off of her sending to the movies and everything, to Jean Harlow. Any sense of normalcy that Norma Jean must have felt now at this place that her mom had a mortgage job and living there for about a year, a year and a half, was interrupted abruptly. Because Gladys learned that her 13-year-old son, Jackie, who was living with a father, it's like her first kid, had died of kidney disease. And then, within weeks, she also found out that her grandfather, Tilford, hung himself, and that her lab studio, so like where she was working, was going on strike. So, you know, there was Della's death, then her kid's death, then her father hung himself. So, obviously, this was trigger after trigger. And may I repeat yet again what period we are talking about? Nobody's dealing with any form of depression in any normal way. Psychopharmacology just wasn't sophisticated in 1934, and nobody really paid any attention to any side effects that any medication that Gladys was taking at the time might have actually had on her. 
So this will mark the beginning of 40 years of Gladys being institutionalized. Depending on like which biography you lead, this had happened in different ways. Marilyn, according to the interviews, would say that she kept hearing the terrible noise on the stairs, her mother screaming and laughing as they led her out of the home that she had tried to build for her. Gladys would first be placed at a state hospital in Norwalk, which would be where Della had actually passed away, and she would be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Spoto, the biographer of the book, does think that maybe out of everybody in Marilyn's family, Gladys might have had some mental health issues, but rather it was because of the circumstances. It was because it's understandable because of all of the triggers. But that rather than any actual clinical psychiatric illness, she was pushed into depression by circumstances, and then just swallowed up in the system where mental health care was rudimentary where she might have been misdiagnosed, she might have been given unsuitable medication, and this might have turned a temporary crisis into a lifelong illness. And we know that because, as I mentioned, she will be in and out of mental health institutions for about 40 years. What her mother's hospitalization meant for Marilyn, really, is that studios later in her career would try to get her to hide the messy past, to conceal her mother's mental illness, for it not to be scandalous, and they would always try to get her to concoct like a full story about her parents. More on that later. But as for the rest of her mother's life, she would be under whatever medication she was given. That's something that really we don't speak about when it comes to Marilyn's story and what will become prevalent in Marilyn's own life, that had this story happened to anybody else, and if I were to tell you a story of somebody who wasn't a famous person, we'd really speak about this, like medical records not being shared, the lack of modern medicine back in the day, the fact that somebody could have been misdiagnosed their whole life, but here we just don't really mention it like that. Marilyn would see her mother only a few times from this point on. She would sometimes go to the home for clinic-supervised visits, and it would always be said that the mom was just under heavy medication, that she wouldn't really be even saying anything. Sometimes she would say, like, you used to have such tiny little feet. It would just always be very mundane conversation, if any. When she visited later in life with this photographer, he would say that the reunion would always lack warmth, that they had nothing to say to each other. However, one thing that you should know is that Marilyn secured her mother's financial future for life. Her mom would eventually get out of the homes, she would even remarry, and she would outlive her daughter. On the final release from the hospital in 1967, Gladys actually went to live with her daughter Bernice in Florida. She would move to a retirement home three years after that, and when she was asked about her famous daughter Marilyn, she said, don't mention that woman to me. I never wanted her to go into that business. Gladys would spend her final years at the old age home to be in Florida, and she died at the age of 81. In 1984, she outlived Marilyn by more than two decades. 
this chapter on the mom over, we are going into our first point of view to find out and pick up back in the timeline at the time when her mom was institutionalized. And we are going to learn about Marilyn's formative years through the eyes of now third mother figure that Norma Jean would have in about eight years. This would be Gladys's friend Grace. Remember Grace? The co-worker, the supervisor at the Consolidated Labs that her mom would go out and drink with. Well, you haven't learned much about Grace up until this point, and boy will you. The most Karen-looking person on the agenda today. Grace McKee. What can I tell you about Grace and how she saw Marilyn? Because that's really what we are here to do. Usually, I try to be unbiased about the people that I talk about, try to give you the both sides of the story. I'm here to tell you that I'm extremely biased against Grace McKee, and that if you don't end up hating her with a passion by the end of the segment on her in this story, I haven't done my job. I'm just here to say that. Why do I say that? Because everybody we're talking about today wanted something for Marilyn. Everybody exploited her in some way, but Grace McKee did it to her when she was an actual child. Grace McKee was born in Montana in 1895. By 1915, she was already divorced, living in LA, and remarried to a 21-year-old garage mechanic. Now, she was quite determined. She was always ambitious and always knew how to talk the talk, but she really wanted to be a movie actress, and it just never seemed a possibility for her. How people describe Grace, and especially the co-workers from Consolidated, how they have described her, is a free-wheeling, hard-working, and fast-living, ambitious to succeed, a busy body. Whoever and whatever she wanted, she went and got. Parting and booze seemed the most important things in her life, and work was just means to that end. This is why Gladys and her kicked it off. They were both in the similar periods of their time when, you know, they would get divorced and then they would just go about town. However, if I were to define Grace's point of view, how she saw Marilyn, which is what I have set out to do, is, you know, when parents project on their kids what they want to be themselves, but they have never somehow succeeded despite of their ambition, despite of them like really thinking they'd be great at acting. That was Grace McKee. She saw Marilyn sort of as a prodigy, somebody as an extension of her, somebody who should have been a successful actress, like her now adoptive mom, guardian to a certain degree, guardian, let's call it for who she really was because she never managed to accomplish her own dreams. And Grace would set out after her mom was institutionalized to do just that. So Marilyn's mom is placed into a hospital around 1934. And this is when Grace takes over. Seeing this guardianship from afar, a fellow worker of Grace's would always say, if it weren't for Grace, there would be no Marilyn Monroe. Grace raved about Norma Jean, like she was her own. Grace said Norma Jean was going to be a movie star. She had this feeling. She would say, don't worry, Norma Jean. You're going to be a beautiful girl when you get big. An important woman. A movie star. 
If you carefully listen to just that one line by Grace saying you are going to be a beautiful girl, not like you are already beautiful, you are already enough, something that Marilyn really deserved to hear at that point, that is because Grace knew that a woman's appearance can be changed, and she knew because she was herself an avid movie viewer exactly what worked at the time. So she applied it to, by that point, seven, eight-year-old Norma Jean. Grace knew how a woman's appearance could be changed by makeup, lights, filters, and shadows. How, with a quick snip of the scissors, an unflattering image could be eliminated. She knew by profession what the studio successfully marketed, what worked, what the public wanted. The infinite varieties of cosmetic surgery, later one of LA's most heavily advertised and lucrative professions, became perhaps the logical extension of the movie world's cravings for impossible ideal. It was, in other words, Grace McKee's job to help perfect illusions. And with greater frequency and intensity during the next several years, Norma Jean became the heiress of Grace's experience. In taking on the child's care and education, she had at last an opportunity to create a daughter nature had denied her. I had not looked into why Grace McKee couldn't have her own child. I just know, based off of the book, that she couldn't. I'm not really even sure if that is available, you know, the medical records and how that would have been known, but we just know that Grace couldn't have her biological children, and that's why she did quite a number on Marilyn. She would bring Norma Jean to the lab, to the hair salons, somewhere to display her, to show off, isn't she pretty? Norma Jean, turn around and show the nice man the big bow on the back of your dress. Now walk down that way and turn around. Good. Now walk back here again. Oh, here comes Ella, Norma Jean. You met Ella last month. Tell Ella again. She's probably forgotten, but you haven't forgotten. Tell Ella what you are going to be when you're all grown up. Say a movie star, baby. Tell her you're going to be a movie star. This kind of brainwashing would continue every week, for months and months on end. Norma Jean was going to be a movie star, and that was that. After me having read these couple of paragraphs through the books, you might think, okay, this does remind us in today's world of, like, pageant shows, for example, or family bloggers, vloggers, where they invest in their child, they really project on them, because the child is actually what people are there for. The child is actually the one making the money. However, then those people really take care of those kids as well, because they know that that kid is their biggest investment. Grace did not. She did not take care of Norma Jean. So, she did, obviously, as a guardian, really take care to take all of Gladys's money. As soon as Gladys was institutionalized, Grace took over to control the house, every single penny in that bank account, for herself, because Grace still wanted to go out and find herself a man, which meant that Norma Jean would go into an orphanage. And this is yet again where, with Gladys, you can kind of identify with her. Like, yes, she was going through poverty, she wasn't really in the right place, she was really young, she didn't really even have the money. With Grace, Grace had all the money. 
She had all of the resources she did not have to send Norma Jean, at the age of eight, back into an orphanage. But she did. Why she did it? Because she wanted to remarry. And she didn't really want Norma Jean to live with her and her husband. And suddenly I was taken to the orphan's home. I was only nine or ten. And I put my feet down on the sidewalk. They had to drag me in. I said, I'm not an orphan. And then later, uh, some people said, uh, oh, well, it's better you forget about your mother. I said, but where is my mother? They said, she's dead. Grace did remarry a guy called Doc Goddard, and this would be by the summer of 1935. So, Norma Jean moved in with a couple, eventually, after which they would dispatch her to a Los Angeles orphanage. This would be 1935, when she was only nine years old. And in the interviews, Marilyn would say it just felt like a mistake. Like, there must have been some mistake. She wasn't an orphan. She knows what had happened to her mother. She heard the screams. She knows she's institutionalized, but she knows she has a mother. And then she had the foster care experience. And now she's in an orphanage. Why? It just felt like, no, I'm, this is a mistake. I must be coming home with Grace later that day. But it wasn't. For almost two years, Grace would pay for the girl's room and board, about $15 a month, and for clothes and expenses. Now, something to mention here is that later, if you have ever listened to Marilyn's interviews, I've only found actually a couple of archives, but there must be some more. Marilyn only, according to the book, lived in three foster homes. I think like one foster home and then two orphanages. And by the time of her interviews and her career, you know, it would be five, six, seven, eight, whatever would sell the story better. Just something to keep in mind. I'm not saying by any stretch of imagination that that makes this better. It's just that later some of the parts of this story have been blown out of proportion. She was never, like, abused. She had a stable life in the foster home with Polanders and then in this orphanage. It's just that when you look at it from the lens of somebody who had the money and the resources to actually take care of the child, maybe not sending that child into an orphanage might have been a better idea mentally for that little girl. As Norma would have been told by Ida Bolander, her own mother had dropped her off, and Norma Jean learned for herself that she could be turned away when she was an inconvenience. In adulthood, her lack of close female friends owed much to these early experiences. She had no primary experience on which to base any trust of a woman, no experience of womanly constancy. Once again, any semblance of a normal pattern of early socialization was subverted. Even with Marilyn in the orphanage, of course, Grace would take care of her the way that she knew how to. She would overly sexualize Marilyn and would continue to take her out on Saturday treats. She would take her always for a lunch and a movie and on special occasions, obviously, to beauty parlors for her to be beautiful. She actually, the book says, she really wanted to bleach her hair, this child's hair, was nine years old at the time, already converted her into this peroxide blonde because she saw it on movies and she saw Jean Harlow and everything. So she, the only way she didn't do it, the only reason why she didn't do it is because the home wouldn't allow it. 
Of these experiences of her going to beauty parlors, Marilyn would later say that Grace would touch a spot on her nose and tell her, you're perfect, except for this little bump, sweetheart, but one day you'll be perfect, like Jean Harlow. But Marilyn knew that no matter what, she would never be perfect, as anybody else, let alone herself. She was primed to be a manufactured face of cultured fantasies, by grace, without even knowing it. And you have to think what that puts into the head of the child. <laughs> this woman gets me so heated. Because if you're in the orphanage, knowing that you have a guardian, knowing that you have a mother who is alive but unable to take care of you, and then somebody takes you out on Saturdays as a treat, and you have to look a certain way, you have to present yourself a certain way in order to deserve that treat. You're constantly told that you're not perfect, but you can become perfect. What that puts into your head? You obviously want to get out of the orphanage and spend time with this insane woman who is overly sexualizing you and displaying you to your co-workers, to her co-workers, and also displaying you in this beauty parlor. But for you to please her, to please this mother figure, you also have to look a certain way. Mentally as well, this paragraph really summarizes where Marilyn was, because when she would return from those trips, she would, of course, again go back to fantasies. She would tell the orphans of wonderful parents that she had. Typically, Norma Jean's yearning for solace evoked a vivid fantasy life. I sometimes told the other orphans I had real wonderful parents, who were away on a long trip and would come for me at any time. And once I wrote a postcard to myself and signed it from mother and daddy. Of course, nobody believed it, but I didn't care. I wanted to think it was true. And maybe, if I thought it was true, it would come true. The orphanage where she was staying at kind of honed in on these emotions. They figured out how lonely Marilyn was. So when Grace would come to pick her up, they kind of told her she might be better off with her family, with the guardian, with somebody that she knew. Which meant that when Marilyn was 11 years old, Grace finally actually took her out of the orphanage. At first, she lived with the Goddards. She lived with Grace and Doc. And this is when Marilyn would end up being molested by Doc, by Grace's husband. He had a drunken attempt to molest her. According to Marilyn's first marriage, this was sexual assault, from what I have seen. It wasn't an actual rape, although how would he have known? But she actually managed to dash off. She managed to run away. And of course, when she told Grace that her husband had molested her, well, Grace's reaction was... I can't trust anything or anyone. So, at first, she was waking up with the Goddards, and then Grace decided to actually ship her away. Grace, after actually supporting her husband, who molested Norma Jean instead of listening to her, she shipped her away to, from what I gather, these were Grace's cousins. So, here, yet again, however, a few weeks before, Norma's 12th birthday, she was sexually assaulted again. This assault happened by a 13-year-old cousin called Jack, and all we know about it is that he forced her into some sort of violent sexual contact. 
This incident would reinforce in Norma the sense that she was desired as an object, but she would always be left feeling abused, and the family said that she would obsessively bathe for days after. But then the twelfth birthday comes around, and Grace, again oblivious, just not caring enough, she just comes to take her out for her birthday. She would spend some money on her new dress, and then outrageous amount of money for a hair treatment. She would prepare the girl's makeup and take her for a professional photographic session as the final gift for her 12th birthday. She would explain that this is her first step towards fame, towards growing up to become the new Jean Harlow. After this, she announced yet another decision. Norma Jean was to move the house again. She moved to a more permanent home in 1938, and she started living with Grace's aunt, called Anna Lower. Now, about this, Grace would actually say that this aunt was religious, but the most stable character in her whole childhood. That this is the first person that she ever loved, and that she actually felt love from. Which is so, so sad that this could happen only when she was 12 years old, because of a fucking dickhead. In Anna's care, Marilyn also experienced some stability. She was in school, and she was finally making friends as well, like engaging with other students. Now, what the book states about this experience is she wasn't really popular in school. Actually, her nickname was Mouse, and she was quite shy. She never knew how to form any close friendships, because, again, she lived in foster care and then was dispatched from house to house. She never knew how to become friends with somebody, and she really didn't bond with either the guys or the girls. That was until 1939, when things changed around. Her body, rather, started changing. She would say later of this experience that even the girls noticed her, and then the world became friendly. So here again we have yet another association that for people to love you and pay attention to you, you have to be sexualized, because that's the only way that they will actually care. Not everything was going great when it came to puberty, and this is really where her health issues will begin, because with her period, and just no modern medicine at the time, Marilyn would start a lifelong history of gynecological issues, including chronic endometriosis. Another issue that she had had was with communication, and I mean that quite literally, and this nobody mentions, but I am pretty sure that it stemmed from the sexual assaults, and that was that Marilyn developed a stutter. I'm saying that because I have not heard that she had a stutter as a child, it's only that it seemed to have developed here. So that's why I think, psychologically, it probably stemmed from the sexual assaults. And then later in my teens, I stuttered, and I was, um, uh, they elected me secretary of the English class, no, secretary of the minutes of the English class, whatever you call. And uh, then I say, minutes of the last meeting. I'm like a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's terrible. 
as she was working for a school newspaper, when she would be a secretary and asked to do the minutes, she would always stutter. She would always say, mm -mm, minutes. And that's how she was remembered. So when they would do A for ambitious and they would come to her name, it would simply be mm -mm, Norma Jean Baker. So in and out of school, she was the M girl. But she realized soon enough, just like with her body, she can capitalize on this. She can turn this liability into an asset. With this being situation in school, of course, things at home couldn't really stay stable for long. So Anna Lower actually had health issues. This was Grace's aunt, so she was quite of age at the time. So Marilyn had to return to live with the Goddards in about 1941. And the same year, actually, Goddard got a job to relocate to West Virginia. So, Child Protection Services in California wanted to prevent them from taking Marilyn out of state. So, Grace's other option was, of course, let's bring this child back into an orphanage. And she had another idea, though. If this is not really a plausible option. If, like, Marilyn doesn't really desire, if her heart doesn't desire to go back into the orphanage, she had another idea. Now, I don't know if you, by this point, liked Grace, if you thought, oh, my, you're too strict on her, she was such a great individual. If it weren't for Grace, there would be no Marilyn Monroe. But I think an arranged marriage might sway your opinion, because that's exactly what Grace decided to do. Norma Jean, at this point, would be 15, so Grace only had to wait for her to turn 16. At the time, that would have been legal. She didn't even have to fake any birth certificates or anything like we have seen happen throughout the history. And she already was friends with this woman called Ethel, who lived down the road, and this woman had a son called James Doherty who would be referred to as Jim throughout most of the books, so that's how we are going to refer to him. So, Jim already was popular, and as we know, Marilyn at this point wasn't. He was already driving a Ford, dating several girls, but Grace one day asked him to drive Norma back from school. And she was just a matchmaker made in hell, I guess, because from that point on, she just always be like, oh, Marilyn, you know, hey, this guy, invite him for dinner. And soon enough, obviously, Marilyn knew she's either to go back into an orphanage up until she's 18 years old, so for at least two other years, or marry this guy. Later in her life, it would actually be Jim, her soon-to-be husband, who was at this point 21 years old, but later in life, he would be the one telling reporters that actually this would be when Norma Jean just lost all of the respect for Grace that Grace told Norma Jean that she would never feel insecure again, and now the poor girl felt that Grace had gone back on her word. Still lacking that mother figure, however, Marilyn would remain in regular contact with Grace, even though she would move with her husband and leave Marilyn to marry Jim. Jim would, about this marriage, say that it was so obvious how much Marilyn wanted parental figures. It was obvious to him as well, because she was quite clingy. She would always forgive everything. She didn't want any arguments with him. She wanted all of the attention. And even after any arguments that they would have, he would find her curled up next to him. Just it seemed like she was always playing a part. 
rehearsing for a role that she couldn't figure out yet. Rehearsing for a role of a wife, based off of maybe the movies, because let's be honest, she has not seen the role of a wife displayed in a healthy way, the role of a mother displayed in a healthy way, and also that meant that she would display it in such a way where she was clingy, needy, calling him daddy. In packed lunch he would find notes saying, dear is daddy, when you read this. And also it meant that her outside relationships, like the relationships outside of her marriage, just were non-existent. She had no close women friends, she had no close friends of any sort, really. Only friendships that she had were her husband's young nieces and nephews. Marilyn would, through her life, say that she liked people, but for friends she liked very few people, which is such a mood, but you also need to understand where it stems from. She has never been in a situation, in a school, anywhere for long enough to form any sort of healthy friendships with anybody, any long-lasting friendships, and this would be displayed through her marriage as well. I think I am, because I have very few friends, but not to be exclusive, it's just that uh, I like, although I, I like people, but for friends, I like few people. A few people I In 1944, Marilyn would have a job at Radio Plane. She was inspecting and folding parachutes, and she was working for national minimum wage. And then she was just living probably the most traditional wife-like life that you could imagine. She had a happy routine where she would go to work and then go back home to gym. However, then Jim had to go to war. So whatever her feelings towards him were then, this had only just triggered more feelings of abandonment, yet another person leaving her behind. And this would be the first time out of at least two that we know of, where she expressed her desire to contact her father again. This is, according to many biographers, probably because her husband was gone, and she always craved that father figure. What was said to have happened here, and nobody really knew why, and is this exactly what happened, but it is said that she might have tried to reach out to Gifford via phone on this time. She called the number, she said her name, and said that she was Gladys's daughter. Soon enough, she would put the phone back down. Nobody really knew. Did she speak with anybody? Has she ever been in touch with Gifford? and she just collapsed, she would tell Jim that the man had actually hung up on her. And in Jim's words, after the call, they were closer than ever. He was her lover, husband, and father. According to the book by Donald Spoto, it might be that this was just one of Marilyn's pretend games, the way that she was pretending to be a wife. Whenever she feared being abandoned, she pretended to be a lost, rejected child and she called for her father in those moments. She knew her husband had to go back to the war, but also she considered him going as just another rejection. 
Now, as her husband was actually shipped to the Pacific, he would remain there for the most of the next two years, so between 44 and 46. And as Marilyn is working in this factory inspecting these parachutes, different photographers would be reaching out to the women of the men in the war, to the women on the assembly line. And they wanted different prints. They wanted them for silent movies, for them to show, you know, nationalism and everything, for beautiful women to be shown saying goodbye to the husbands. So they actually went into the factory where she was working and in order to shoot the morale-boosting pictures of female workers. The photographer that actually reached out to her took pictures of her and so many other women, and it is said that none of these pictures were actually used. However, because of the relationship that she had already created with this photographer called David Conover, she quit working at the factory. And in January of 1945, she already started modeling for him. As her husband is still deployed, Marilyn moves on her own, and she even signed a contract with the Blue Book Model Agency in August of 1945. Jim and his mom, Ethel, obviously did not approve of this, because, well, her husband went to war, she started off as a military wife, and already, not even a year in, she became every photographer's dream. Marilyn, however, had finally found herself. She wasn't depending on anybody, she wasn't in need of a father figure when she was modeling. So, from clothing catalogs to fashion shows, it was clear that her forte was not modeling clothes, but rather appearing in glamour poses for ads. It was herself, not what she wore, that made the impression, that sold the goods. By 1946, Norma Jean would have appeared on at least 33 covers of different magazines. And the person owning the agency where she was working at now wanted her hair lightened. So this is when she would tell her blonde photographed better. And this is when Norma started changing her look. On her own accord, Grace was still in her life, but she did this based off of the other professionals and how they said she would look better. This meant that two years after her husband was deployed, Norma already had a job. She was basically working, modeling for all of these covers, 33 of them to be precise. So when he left for war, Norma Jean was a scene from a sentimental wartime movie. But now there was just no greeting, even when he was back. She was late, coming from a modeling job. And this obviously changed the dynamic of the household. So Jim wanted a divorce. He wanted a divorce also because he saw, once he was actually back from the war, how she interacted with all of these different photographers. He highly suspected that the business trips with them weren't just business trips, that they didn't limit themselves to it. At first, he didn't think that she was unfaithful, but he just couldn't deal with her going away on modeling trips, he couldn't deal with the jealousy. There was one person looking from the sidelines at Norma Jean's modeling career, at her now finally succeeding, becoming who she really thought Norma Jean would become, and she wanted some credit for it. So Grace returned to California eventually, she continued to invite Norma Jean, suddenly she was welcome at her home for dinners and everything. Funny how that happened. Suddenly, Norma Jean can come live with her anytime. 
By this time, Norma was launching into the modeling career and she didn't really care for Grace. She saw Grace for who she really was. So Grace resorted to alcohol. She started drinking heavily and she just wasn't always all there. However, still as her legal guardian, she would actually accompany her to 20th Century Fox Studios and put her signature to Norma Jean's first film contract. This would be in 1946. The signature was recovered because Norma Jean still wasn't 21. After that, really, Grace and Marilyn weren't keeping in touch. She would visit Grace in 1949 and 51, but was just really distressed by Grace's demise, by how she was turning more and more into an alcoholic. This relationship would fully end in 1953, when Marilyn would learn that Grace actually overdosed on barbiturates. After a number of years of just fighting alcoholism and also having strokes, she said not to have attended her funeral. And through different interviews, you can really say that in the early years, Marilyn was thankful for Grace. She was financially able to take responsibility, but at least she was thankful to her as she could have kept her at that place, meaning the orphanage, up until she was 18 years old. If Grace was financially unable to care for me, but I'm very grateful that they at least assumed the responsibility because I could have just been kept there until I'm 18. She would see Grace's attempts to take her to the hairdresser, to beautify her as somebody being nice to her, taking her out, her being her mom's best friend, not as grooming who Grace really was. But later in life, Marilyn wouldn't be so grateful. She would hate the fact that Grace put her into the orphanage, that she took off for West Virginia, abandoning her after promising that she would never be sent away again, and she resented her for the arranged marriage. So to finalize the point of view on Grace, let us go back to the famous line by the Observer and Grace's co-worker. If it were not for Grace, there would be no Marilyn Monroe. From this point on, what you're going to see is if it were not for Marilyn and her own brains and how she actually dealt with situations in her life, there would be no Marilyn Monroe. Grace was the person that wanted to live her life through Marilyn. She was never responsible for Marilyn's career. Grace would be a signature on Marilyn's contracts, but she could not advise her on what to do in order to succeed because she never succeeded herself. What I mean by that is that Grace couldn't tell Marilyn how hard it will be to survive in this world. Even her modeling career, when you hear on the surface 33 covers between first two years of somebody's career that they have never done before, it just sounds great. However, here is where I kind of need to let you in on the behind the scenes between the relationships that Marilyn would have with the photographers during her modeling career. Marilyn knew what she wanted. She knew that connections with photographers can lead to connections with directors and producers. And everything she had been told by Grace and everybody in her life that Grace displayed her to, well, was that she is going to become a famous actress one day. So she knew that she wanted that as her career, and she finally saw it possible. 
But also Marilyn was smart. She knew that connections with people, yes, lead to networking, lead to her being introduced to others. And she also knew when to stop her connections with people when they didn't suit her anymore, when she didn't really need them anymore. I mean, in fact, if anything, her whole childhood taught her that. When to stop being connected with somebody when that person didn't want you, when they wanted to abandon you. So the way that she saw her modeling career, especially in the early years, is that she repaid these photographers with herself. They would be the ones to introduce her potentially to more influential people. And a pattern would emerge where she was excited at being with photographers. This psychologically comes from her constantly seeking approval, sex becoming a logical extension of that character. And the moment when she would be photographed would always be unthreatening to her. She always needed to feel that she is being liked. It made her feel secure. Meaning that in our timeline she has just signed a contract with Fox. And it is said that Fox executives were reluctant about signing her on, but they just did it for six months in order for her not to sign with the rival studios. And at this point, Jim already gave her a divorce, because he asked her to choose between her career and him, and obviously she had just modeled for two years while he was at war, and also has signed her first movie contract with Fox. So she was not going to miss out on that opportunity. Marilyn signs on with Fox for about six months, and during these six months she would be in learning mode. She would be learning how to act, how to sing, how to dance, and would just be observing the whole filmmaking process. Her contract would be renewed at first, and she was given her first movie roles. In movies like Dangerous Years, Skuda Who, Skuda Hey, and also the studio worked hard to upskill her, so they enrolled her into the actor's laboratory theater. This would be the acting school that would teach the techniques of the group theater. And she would say this would be the first taste for her of what real acting and real drama could be, and that she was hooked. She had a standard contract. She was getting only about $75 a week for the first six months, but she cared about the press articles that were being published on her, as the salary was just menial. Only one thing still had to be sorted, her stage name. So she was chatting with an executive who said she reminded him of Marilyn Miller, who would be the Broadway musical star, and she said, okay, Marilyn works, Miller doesn't, like I can't just be, you know, a replica of somebody else. However, there is a name of somebody in my family. Remember Otis? Otis Monroe? Well, from that point on, it was set. She got a six-month contract, her hair was permanently heightened, and hydrogen peroxide and ammonia have been applied. Marilyn Monroe was born. Secretary rang and said, Mr. Lyon, there's a very beautiful young girl here to see you, but she doesn't have an appointment. I said, well, Mary, you don't have to have an appointment to see me. Send her in. So a moment later, in walked the most gorgeous young girl you've ever seen in your life, this golden hair, beautiful little print dress, and uh, 22 years old. I said, sit down. So she sat by the desk, and I began asking various questions, what she'd done. She told me a little extra work and a bit here and there. And I said, what's your ambition? She said, to be a film star. And I looked at her, and I said, well, honey, 
you're in pictures and I think you will be a film star. I said, uh, I don't think you can use the name Norma Jean Doherty if you're going to be a star. We've got to change your name. By the contract, we have a right to change the name. So she agreed, and we looked in the book and thought of all kind of combinations of names. Nothing suited us. And finally, I remembered a girl I knew in New York, a stage star by the name of Marilyn Miller. And I said, to me, you're a Marilyn. And she said, that's a lovely name. I said, all right, that's your first name. We couldn't find a second name, but she suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Lyon, could I use my grandmother's name? I said, what was that? I said, Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. Despite of just how enthusiastic she was, how much she actually wanted to progress and upskill, well, the teacher saw the shy girl, the one that we have seen in high school, the girl with the stutter who was working for the school newspaper, somebody who was insecure, to have a future in acting. So her contract with Fox wasn't renewed in 1947. And now she was petrified. She had a stutter, she only had this modeling career, even in the movies where she was in, she wasn't on top 10 of the credits list of the actors. Rather, she was quite down the line. So she wondered what now. Beyond wondering that and where her life is really going when it comes to her career, as for her personal life, she was now divorced from her first husband, and she would be exposing herself to different experiences, which is where she met this couple, Lucille and John Carroll. These would be the film execs who would get her eventually different casting for movies for the MGM. However, she saw them more as surrogate parents, again. She would even invent that somebody tried to break into her place just in order to stay with them, to sleep over at their house. She even had this whole weird incident when she suggested to John that she sees herself with him. Like, she should, you know, he should divorce her life. He should divorce her wife and be with her. And then he rejected her, so she went to Lucille telling her that she should divorce him. And John actually spoke to her, telling her that he just wants to help her career. And both Lucille and John say about this, not just how weird it was, but how unfazed she was. She just would go for it. She would just be like, okay, cool. Now, this didn't happen, this didn't pan out, so I'm gonna move on. It just seemed like she was constantly in search of a surrogate father, of like a parental figure. And well, if they didn't want it, then she would move on to the next person. It just still looked like she looked through her life through the lens of a need of masculine acceptance and affirmation. But to really give you the best day today in a life of the rest of Marilyn's modeling career and also behind the scenes of her early movies and dating life, we are going to enter another point of view of a woman who was by her side called Natasha, I believe her last name is pronounced Lights, or Litis. We're just gonna call her Natasha from now on. The way Natasha saw Marilyn, and I don't have much to say against Natasha out of everybody I'm speaking about today, she's probably the most likable character, which again doesn't mean much, but she saw Marilyn as her own creation, in a sense. More in a career sense of things, rather than Grace, who saw her as just her creation, full stop. 
but also we, Natasha, like if you just do a quick Google search, you're going to see a bunch of articles about her possibly dating Marilyn, them being in some sort of lesbian relationships. From the book and everything I have read, I believe this would have been more the case of unrequited love on Natasha's side. She might have wanted her whole life, well, rather the life that she had spent by Marilyn's side, to be with her, but that Marilyn, unfortunately, saw her as a surrogate mother. As sad as that actually is. So, through Carol's and also the studio at the time, Columbia Pictures, she was introduced to Marilyn. Now, she was introduced to Marilyn to be her drama coach, as she had that background, and as I just mentioned, Marilyn was thinking, what now? Like, I need to upskill, I need to get rid of the stutter, I need to learn how to speak, how to compose myself, I just need to be a better actress. So, who was Natasha? She was born as a Jew in Germany. So, when Nazis came to power, she had to move to the US, and she chose to settle in LA. She hoped to have a great career as an actress as well, but because of her accent, and because, and this is not my words, her unfeminine appearance, she had a limited number of roles that she could actually play. So, she studied, became a drama coach, and then, during her time as the drama coach for Columbia Pictures, she was shown Marilyn's screen test and convinced the head of Columbia Pictures to hire her for a six-month contract. Natasha would be by Marilyn's side tutoring her for the next six years, so between 48 and 55, roughly, through 20 movies. And she was feeding into Marilyn's need to be perfect. The way she saw Marilyn at first, with her stutter, with her inexperience, is just as half done. She said that her acting was inhibited and cramped, and she would not say a word freely. Her habit was barely to move her lips when she spoke, and it was quite unnatural. All this I tried to teach Marilyn, but she knew her sex appeal was infallible, that it was the one thing on which she could depend. If you have ever listened to, like, a Marilyn interview, or just, like, the ones I'm playing throughout this video, you know that she has quite an emotive way of speaking. Like, everybody in the comments always is saying, you know, how just her way of speaking is quite particular, is quite sensual in a way. Most of that actually came because of Natasha's coaching. She told her diction, recitation, she coached her on the mannerisms in her speaking voice, saying that the keyboard of the human voice is the gamut of emotion, and each emotion has its corresponding shade of tone. Natasha would always be on set, and the producers actually hated that, because Marilyn, she was still not really confident in herself throughout these few years of her career, would actually physically glance for approval in Natasha's direction, and this would be visible in most of those movies. And obviously, the producers, directors, you know, after they're editing the scene, they're like, oh, God damn it! like, she's still looking in the direction of her drama coach. So, they didn't like her. And also, the fact that Marilyn was actually paying her and not really earning much meant that in the first couple of years of her career, her drama coach was actually earning more than Marilyn was. 
And as for the personal life, as I mentioned, Natasha was mostly in a friend zone, by all accounts. In her memoirs, Natasha would write about her desire, saying, I took her in my arms one day and I told her I want to love you. I remember she looked at me and said, you don't have to love me, Natasha, just as long as you work with me. The main reason why I decided to put you in Natasha's shoes here and in her point of view is for you to see the perspective of Marilyn and the man that she was dating through Natasha's eyes, as I thought that might be actually a lot more interesting than putting you into the shoes of, for example, a guy who was known as Johnny Hyde. He was an older man. When Marilyn was 22, Johnny was 53. And it was said that he was her sugar daddy, he was one of the execs in Hollywood, the most powerful agent at the time, and he saw Marilyn as his next wife. But he already had a family, and she again saw him as a father. But here, unlike in so many relationships in Marilyn's life, she saw him as a father, but she didn't want to marry him. She didn't want to date him. She just wanted this to be a professional relationship. He took Marilyn on as a client and fell in love with her, however. And he was hugely influential for her getting certain roles, like All About Eve and Asphalt Jungle. Now, Hyde always thought he had more control over her. And we know that Marilyn was always aspiring to become more perfect, to become a better actress. So, Hyde told her to have tube litigation, that she should never have kids. She never did, because Marilyn always actually wanted to have a child. But also, during this time, it was always, you know, by tabloids speculated that she might have already had some abortions, and that she was sleeping with Johnny, etc. But Marilyn would only have two miscarriages and an ectopic pregnancy, resulting in termination much later in life. Hyde wouldn't stop there, though, because just like Grace, he saw what the ideal was at the time, and he really wanted to convert Marilyn into that ideal. So he would pay for her dental work, to remove the bump of cartilage from the tip of her nose, he would insert prosthesis into her jaw to just give her a softer jawline. And as somebody used to rising above others' expectations, with Grace, with Volanders, with Jim, Marilyn just accepted. At this point, even though she was coached by Natasha, even though she had a role in 1949 in Love Happy, her fourth film, her career was still slow and going nowhere, at least according to Marilyn. So, she was still in Actors Lab, now with Natasha, she was sparked by Natasha, usually, with the Russian literature. In particular, she would recite lines from Pushkin in order to practice. But then, 1949 came around, and with no movie in sight, she would return to modeling. So, when her contract at Columbia ended, and a photographer approached her, asking her to pose nude for a calendar in 1949, she accepted. She would say in the interviews that she was hungry. She had to pose nude to pay for rent. There was no money, and, you know, after being delayed on rent for a week or two, she decided to accept. She only posed nude upon the promise that she won't be recognized from the nude pictures, and that was it. However, a lot of people, including the author of the book, 
think that this might have been calculated. Like, she had Hyde, she still had her movie career, why was she behind on rent? She had people like Carol's, anybody supporting her in her support system, to ask for money. She didn't have to pose nude, and that this was just one of those things that Marilyn did, where, you know, she acted like she had to do this, there was no other options when faced with that, like, in her later career, as a choice during her early career. Depends what you want, really, to believe. Judging by the whole story, I do believe that there was part of Marilyn that was extremely calculated in how she chose her roles. She'd be in the dressing room, and would be getting dressed and changing, so she said to him, probably, um, you know, she got to do nudes or something. And then sometimes other photographers, Willinger had asked me, well, we won't put his name on it, had asked me, oh, and I would say, I don't do body. And one time, Andre Dienes, uh, I went on an interview, and he said, uh, so you do nudes? I said, no, I don't do nudes, never. So I always went around saying never. And then I got so far behind the rent, four weeks, and I owed, I was in debt and everything. So I called up, I said, are you sure they won't recognize? He said, I promise. I said, well, if it's at night and you don't have any helpers, you know, to put the lights in. I said, I don't know. I said, I'm shy and I don't want to um, expose myself to, you know, all, all the people you have. And I said, and at night. He said, all right, just madly and myself. So we did it. And... Uh, that's all. He just uh, spread out some red velvet and had me lie down on the red velvet. I thought, you know, they'd put some kind of lotion on you or something. With Natasha's coaching and Hyde's help, she started getting roles. So things started looking up from 1949 on. Some of those roles, according to the book, involved her actually posing for pimps in evening gowns and swimsuits. And Hyde was getting her these projects to do after the movie shoots, thinking that she might marry him one day. And Marilyn was just fully using him, if you ask me for my honest opinion, and anybody to meet her goals at this point. But she was still not rich. There were actually moments in 1950 she moved in with Natasha, obviously sparking more and more rumors about whether or not they're actually together. And this is when she would get another dog, the Chihuahua, from this producer, Joseph Schneck, that is also speculated that she slept with or not. And this is when rumors about Marilyn started ruminating as well in her early career, that Natasha was always complaining about how unclean she was, how she isn't taking care of this dog. And the simplest correction Marilyn would take as the sentence of damnation when she would be on the film shoots and, you know, somebody behind the camera would tell her, you're actually late. She was quite famous for being late, like an hour or two late. She wouldn't wake up until noon. Eventually, that would be dependent on the pills that she was taking. But even at this point, early in her career, she was just famous for being late. Well, she would tell them, you can be replaced too, but they wouldn't have to hire a replacement and reshoot you. 
1950, Hyde would negotiate a seven-year contract for Monroe with the Fox Studios, and only days later he would die of a heart attack. This is yet another father figure leaving Monroe feeling like somebody who she loved abandoned her once again. According to the book, Natasha and her actually snuck into the memorial service because they weren't invited, because Hyde had his own family, and this would have been seen as very controversial. And Natasha said, from her point of view, she just saw Marilyn the way she hadn't before. It felt like she had remorse. She felt a terrible sense of loss, because this was just yet another person leaving her side. And his death, Hyde's death, would actually get Marilyn to spiral. At this point, she might have already been using some sleeping pills to get herself to sleep. However, this is when Natasha would actually find her comatose at their home. Marilyn would say about this event that this was exaggerated, that Natasha actually found her with a melted sleeping pill in her mouth and then blew this up as a suicide attempt just to emphasize her, Natasha's, actions as a savior of Marilyn's. And however you feel about this, Hyde's death actually inspired yet another trip, rather Marilyn's desperate search in order to find out who her father really was. Here again it is believed that she actually tried to meet up with Gifford. However, Natasha couldn't remember the name of the man, there was never any verification of any contact with them, but apparently they set out on a trip, Natasha and Marilyn, to see her long-lost father. They drove out to Palm Springs and Marilyn pulled up at a service station, and this is apparently where she made a call to her father. She again returned to the car in tears, because apparently Gifford refused to see her. There was never any further confirmation as to whether or not this was Gifford, whether or not anything else was arranged. It's just that every single time a man who she sees as a surrogate father leaves her, departs for war, or dies, she has this tendency to go and search for her actual biological father. And it's just so sad that she never actually manages to have anything confirmed all the way up until her death. In 1951, while Natasha was still by her side, Marilyn would end up meeting three important men. One would be a playwright, one would be a famous director, and one would be another drama teacher. She still, at this point, felt like she only had a few minutes of screen time, because she did, that she was 11 out of 15 names on the list of credits. And the Fox contract was, at this point, standard. She had a guaranteed salary, about 500 a week, and that would increase annually. So, by the seventh year of her contract, she would have had 3,500 a week for the last year. She was getting also more roles, and not just any roles, but like supporting roles now, in the comedies like As Young As You Feel, Love Nest, and Let's Make It Legal. According to Ushkoto, she was seen as the sex symbol, as the dumb blonde in all of those early movies. However, here finally she started receiving some praise from the critics, and those would be respectable publications like the New York Times. Her popularity with the audiences was also growing, and Marilyn loved that, because she would receive thousands of fan letters a week, 
And she knew when those would come to the studio that the people have chosen her. She knew the power that that had. That, that studio now is going to be a lot more reluctant to get rid of her. As for the director and the playwright that she would be introduced in the early 1950s, well, the director would be a guy called Elia Kazan. Elia, or Elia, I'm not really sure how this is pronounced, would be another famous Hollywood name. He was American film and theater director, producer, screenwriter, and an actor. And he was always in close collaboration with different screenwriters, being the director, obviously, and the producer, including one such Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, according to the book, seemed to Marilyn as a champion of the lost and wounded, of those without a voice to speak for them, and so he won her esteem. In the soil of such sentiments, love would soon take root, but the opportunity for its full flowering would require five years. When they met, Marilyn would be 25, and Arthur was 10 years older. He was born in 1915, and his family endured the hardships of the Great Depression. So he worked at a warehouse, then he attended the University of Michigan, where he would win a playwriting award, and this is when Arthur really found himself. By the time he met Marilyn, he was married to his college sweetheart, this woman called Mary Slattery, and he would have two children. And this woman, Mary, was said to have leveled him, to have been an intellectual. So it would come as a surprise to everybody when Miller started associating himself with Marilyn. But as we know, this would just happen through parties at this point, through the introduction through Elia. And Marilyn wouldn't actually start anything with Miller for the next couple of years. When Kazan took Marilyn to a party where she met Miller, though, she said later to a friend, it was like running into a tree, you know, like a cool drink when you've had a fever, indicating that Miller actually had respect for her, which was more than enough to make him stand out from other men that she knew. From Natasha's perspective, Marilyn would tell her that she didn't go to bed with Arthur Miller that year, but that he is somebody she could love forever. With the relationship with Kazan being part of the history, now Marilyn briefly moves back in with Natasha to work on her first starring role for Don't Bother to Knock. This would be the first project where she had to do a formal screen test and was also her leading part in a series feature film. Natasha here really said she didn't have much to do, and that Marilyn knew what she was required to do, and that she delivered. However, also Natasha didn't really see Arthur Miller, Elia Kazan, like any man, Johnny Hyde, anybody in Marilyn's life up until that point as a threat, or rather as somebody that she should maybe be on the lookout for, that maybe Marilyn was really interested in. That was until February of 1952, when Marilyn was introduced to a world-famous baseball player, and by the end of the month, they would start dating steadily. Natasha said she disliked him at once. He is a man with a closed, vapid look. Marilyn introduced them, and she introduced herself as her coach, and that made no impression on him. A week later, she telephoned her, and Joey answered, I think if you want to talk to Miss Monroe, you'd better call her agent. This baseball player, Joey, disliked Natasha as much. 
Marilyn would attempt to make peace between the two people who she considered to be closest to her, but it just never worked out. Natasha would warn Marilyn that this man is the punishment of God in her life. To wrap up on Natasha, by this point, like in 1952, the producers just wanted her gone. She just wasn't of much use, not just because she was distracting and Marilyn would look to her, but also she didn't really have as much guidance to offer. Like, her advice in some articles is just like, you're doing great, you're doing all right, but maybe we should do it one more time. Which, like, how is that useful? It's just Marilyn was at a level where she needed somebody more professional, where she needed somebody maybe more qualified. As bad as that sounds. Natasha would have also probably stayed by Marilyn's side forever, coaching her, doing her most, because Marilyn was paying her. And for the longest time, Marilyn was ensuring that she was getting a pay rise, that she was getting paid fairly. However, that all changed in 1954. And this was when she had been replaced by the studio, by Paula Strasberg. And no longer she was protected by Marilyn, the Fox Studios also decided to dump her. And Marilyn here, just again going in line with what I have said of her knowing when the relationship has to end, actually sent her lawyers to end this relationship with Natasha. Natasha of this would say, my only protection in the world is Marilyn Monroe. I created this girl, I fought for her, I'm her private property, she knows that. Her faith and security are mine. From that point on, Marilyn and Natasha would not stay in touch. And Natasha would outlive her for about two years, and then she died from cancer in 1964. She said of her relationship with Marilyn, I wish I had one-tenth of her cleverness. The truth is, my life and my feelings were very much in her hands. I was the older one, the teacher, but she knew the depth of my attachment to her, and she exploited those feelings as only a beautiful younger person can. She said she was the needy one. Alas, it was the reverse. My life with her was a constant denial of myself. Which to me just means that Natasha completely lived through Marilyn, at least through those years that she was mentoring her and that she was by her side. But now we are going into a point of view of a relationship that, in terms of the surrogate father fulfillment, is probably the closest one that I have ever heard of, I have ever seen displayed. And I will tell you exactly what I mean by that. But we know by this point, Marilyn in Men was looking for a surrogate father figure. And a baseball player that she had just met in 1952 was going to fulfill just that. Marilyn here would play a role of a wife again, and while he wanted somebody docile, somebody he can take control of, Marilyn really wanted a father. So, in terms of the point of view and how Joey DiMaggio had seen Marilyn Monroe, he kind of had a very similar background, very similar experience to Marilyn in terms of how he was brought up. But then, what he didn't realize is that they were at two completely different points of their career once they actually met. So he did expect Marilyn to be a wife, to be somebody who is going to come home from shooting a movie and then they will watch television 
for the rest of the night. And he didn't expect her yet again for her to be over and over choosing her career over men. Because she still wanted her career, she just needed a presence of somebody who would be a surrogate father at home. So, who was Joy DiMaggio? And why do I say they were quite familiar in terms of how they were brought up? Joy was a proud Sicilian, and he would become a really famous baseball player. By the time that he met Marilyn, his career was kind of dying down, because he was 37, and usually, you know, sportsman careers kind of start dying down at that point, and Marilyn was only 25 years old. And those two things, the dying career versus really breakthrough of somebody's career, and the age difference, should have been a red flag. But they weren't. And they probably weren't because, like Marilyn, Joey never completed high school. He left in 10th grade, and he started supporting his family. That would be one of the things that bonded the two of them. Joey also grew up in a strict Catholic household, where the same things that Marilyn experienced at Bolander's might have actually happened. So, this experience would have a lasting effect on him, because he would understand what it was like to suffer and to be shunned, the same experience that Norma Jean might have had during her years in foster care. By the time he was 22, however, he was a folk hero at a time when America, deep in Great Depression, desperately needed idols. He would be a rising baseball star, admired by men, worshipped by schoolboys, desired by women. He was a powerful, smooth man, whose impassive expression on and off the field made him all the more attractive and intriguing. Joey also already had the experience of trying to turn somebody into a housewife, and this woman was also an actress, called Dorothy Olsen, who he married in 1939. However, this woman also didn't see the future life in the same terms as he did. So, as DiMaggio was to discover with Marilyn as well, it's kind of hard to convince an ambitious actress to just take a back seat for somebody, to become a traditional housewife. But he would walk away from baseball in early 1943, to join the war effort as a physical training supervisor for the Army Air Force. And he would return to baseball after the war, however, by that point he was in his late 30s, he had multiple sports injuries, and he had to actually take the back seat. As he is now more and more idle, he's looking through the pictures in the newspaper and sees Marilyn's face. And the sight of her just immediately sparked a question who is the blonde? And Joey found out from one of his drinking pals who Marilyn was. And this person apparently could connect him to her through different directors and producers, so they arranged a date. And Joey was said to have waited for Marilyn for about two hours. He thought she would not show up. But she did, and immediately Marilyn was drawn to him. She said, he treated me like something special. Joey is a very decent man, and he makes other people feel decent, too. After the date, he would be persistent. He would call her every day until she went out on another date with him. And it should have been yet another red flag when Marilyn met this typically Italian family. What was expected 
of her, that he wanted her to be a beautiful ex-actress, just like he was the great former ball player. There were other red flags that both of them have ignored, rather Joey here, really, more than Marilyn. In the early years, like literally just as they met up in the first half of 1952, it was leaked that Marilyn posed nude back in the day when she was still a struggling model. And she immediately, obviously, had to do crisis management. So Marilyn saw this yet again, just like with her stutter, like every time she would have been called out for an imperfection or something in the past, she saw this as something she can turn into her own asset. So she would give a statement that she had no money or food, and a photographer that she knew asked her to pose nude for the art calendar. She said that she never thought anybody would recognize her, and now they say it will ruin her career. She needs people's advice. They want her to deny that it's her, but she can't lie. What should she do? And this kind of approach really resonated with people, really resonated with the public, because they understood, like, everybody has been in a situation where they were hungry, where they just maybe didn't have money for the rent, and, like, you have to wonder, what would you do? It made her relatable to the public, and the complete opposite, probably, from what the media, the press, was expecting at the time. But also because this is a superficial world, and now somebody has actually leaked her nudes, technically, in today's terms, well, she found a newfound popularity as a sex symbol. So she had the opportunity to showcase her acting rage, finally. She received more movie roles for, for example, Crash by Night and Don't Bother to Knock, and she would start receiving praises by The Hollywood Reporter, stating that she deserves starring status with her excellent interpretation, and Variety quoting that she had an ease of delivery, which makes her a cinch for popularity. This scandal, however, wouldn't be the only one, because this is the time when, among the letters that she was receiving in the studio, she got the one from Gladys, which Gladys signed as mother, so the studio would alert the press. And Marilyn, yet again, decided to be a relatable person and identify with the press. In the press release, Marilyn would say, My mother spent many years as an invalid in a state hospital. I was raised in a series of foster homes arranged by a guardian through the county of L.A., and I spent more than a year in the L.A. orphan's home. I haven't known my mother intimately, but since I have become grown and able to help her, I have contacted her. I'm helping her now and want to continue to help her when she needs me. Her illegitimacy, however, would have to remain hidden, so she still lied that her dad died in a car accident. However, here, yet again, she just identified with the public. So, she had about two scandals in the year that she met her now almost husband. However, she still managed to play her cards right and know how to get the public onto her side. To Marilyn, Joe DiMaggio would be a protective figure, an advisor, an ally against the narcissism and ruthlessness of Hollywood. Here was her slugger, her Giuseppe, admired by millions, loved by his close-knit family, and now a man who was resolutely on her side. 
Due to the stress of the scandals of the movies that she was in, in 1952 she had to have her appendix removed. As we know, she was struggling with appendicitis from before, and here you really see where she was mentally, because it was said by the doctor this could have been sensationalized, but that when they like took the took the blanket on, when they're on the gurney and they're covered, and when the doctor was about to operate, they found a note from Marilyn with her begging them to have as little damage to her as possible, as few scars, but more importantly, to remove as little of the appendix as possible, fearing infertility. So they didn't remove any ovaries and did everything to prevent from large scars. From this point on, she would also have regular gynecologist meetings in order to deal with her reproductive problems regularly. In 1952, Marilyn for the first time engrossed universal stardom. From the calendar to the news of her mother and her relationship with Joey, and then on to the release of no fewer than five movies, from her frequent appearances in the columns, gossip columns of Sidney Skolsky, to her presence of magazine covers and the news stories at least three times a week and sometimes more, Never before, perhaps in the history of the world, had someone other than a great ruler or head of state received such celebration. Because of this, this would be when the roles were just falling into her lap, and it was up to Marilyn to say yes or no to them. She would act in a movie called Niagara. Then, this is when she would also record her rendition of the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1953. This is when producers have seen the other side of Marilyn, especially when it came to her singing takes, but also with her movies, because she wouldn't settle for just anything. She was a perfectionist. For the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, she asked for 11 takes. She knew exactly what she wanted and how she was about to get it. Other people would say that this reputation wasn't just so much as a perfectionist, rather that she was very difficult to work with and this would worsen as her career progressed. She was just coming to the set later and later, sometimes she didn't show up at all, she would not remember her lines, and would demand several retakes before she was satisfied with the performance. Her problems have often been attributed to the combination of low self-esteem, stage fright, and also a dose of perfectionism. Despite of the two of them being very different people, Joey DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe would still marry at the height of her career. They would marry in January of 1954. And at this point, really, again, why did they marry? I'm not sure. Because they were completely on different wavelengths. He wanted to live in San Francisco, she obviously wanted to stay in LA because LA is where Hollywood was, he preferred to stay at home and watch TV, she obviously wanted to then go out and do press releases and model and basically promote all of her movies because she was now doing really well. At this point, all of the roads seem to be going back to a guy called Arthur Miller that I have mentioned a few years ago. She was already eyeing him out at this point, and she had previously met him through her previous boyfriend at the director, Kazan. A year younger than Joey, Arthur Miller was an intellectual, and as I mentioned, he had a wife and a kids, and his wife was a match to him. 
and he represented serious theater, to which she was devoting her new life. This might be truly why Marilyn was so drawn to Arthur, because in her extracurricular time, in her free time, which was very limited at this point, may I add, especially when she was doing the most amount of movies in the 50s, in the early 50s, well, she really would spend all of her free time going to performances, going to theater, you know, exploring Russian literature, and that is how Arthur fit in. To give you a taster on Arthur Miller, he would admit publicly to dabbling into communist social theory. Arthur came into it late, after other writers like Hemingway had abandoned mid-20th century Russian Marxism as intellectually and socially sterile. Arthur Miller, according to the book in 1950s, was regarded as the dramatic consciousness of American society, for his work plainly concerning with moral and social issues affecting families after the war. In terms of him dabbling into communist social theory, I looked into it a bit, I looked into whether there's any truth about him possibly being a communist, and from what I've seen, there isn't. There are just certain connections, because he was a writer, right? He was a playwright, he was a personal interest, and then he also joined different like, societies, like League of American Writers, and these members of the League of American Writers were largely either Communist Party members or fellow travelers, then, after his graduation, he would join a theater project, and that theater project was actually closed in 1939 by the Congress because of a possible communist infiltration, so he dabbled in it from a research point of view, but there would never be any proof that he was a communist or a traitor. So, as Marilyn is married to Joy, and as she is rather dating Joy in 52, because they would only marry in... 54, Elia Kazan, so the director and the person that introduced her to Miller, and the guy that Marilyn briefly dated, would have to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee. So, he named members of the group theater, not including Arthur, from what I have seen, who in recent years have been fellow members of the Communist Party. And by that point, Miller, Arthur Miller and Kazan have been friends, but because of this testimony, because Kazan was literally snitching on people, well, that friendship had ended. Because of this exposure by Kazan, Miller would eventually have to attend his own hearing, and basically defend himself, really. They looked at him and opened up a whole file on him, and Marilyn would accompany him, risking her own career. This meant that Marilyn, throughout the years that she had actually known Joey, dated Joey, and married him, well, Arthur was always on her agenda, and she would meet up with him and would support him, like, even in front of the Congress. So, the marriage was already in trouble, rather, it's always in trouble, and the couple would return to California. And this is when Marilyn had to attend Photoplay Awards. She was doing so well, and this was her second year running. And here, she confided in her friend Sidney Skolsky that one day she was going to marry Arthur Miller. The watershed moment in Joey and Marilyn's marriage, really, would come in a form of one of Marilyn's most successful movies. This is really how she would break from Joey and then eventually move on to Arthur. Marilyn would get that photoplay award. She would win an award for the most popular female star. 
and she settled with Fox yet again, with Fox Studios, with a promise of a new contract and a bonus and a starring role in the film that's called The Seven Year Itch. This film was to be shot in Hollywood, however the studio decided like what would be the best when it comes to the publicity, and they decided to stage the filming of one scene in which Marilyn is to stand on a subway grate with the air blowing up her skirt in that white dress, one of the most iconic scenes that we know of Marilyn Monroe. And this would be an actual movie scene, like that people would just come and observe. So the shoot was to last for several hours, and there were about 2,000 people just coming and going, because this was just outside the street. Joey would attend the shoot, but it was said that he wasn't really aware of what was going to happen, and he was quite jealous and pissed off. He said, what the hell is going on around here, and then just turned and went back into the hotel. And it was said after this shoot, when Marilyn returned to the hotel room, that they had a vicious fight. The next day, people on the set have said that Marilyn displayed bruises. That there were bruises on her shoulders, and that they had to cover them with makeup. This would be confirmed by multiple people on set and her friend. Her friend said that her back was black and blue. As soon as they returned from LA, Marilyn would file for divorce. And Joey would never take the divorce proceedings as final. He always thought that he could win her back. This would lead to the trial in 1954, where Marilyn would say, my husband would get in moods when he wouldn't speak to me for five or seven days at a time, sometimes longer, ten days. I would ask him what was wrong. He wouldn't answer, or he would say, stop nagging me. I was permitted to have visitors no more than three times in the nine months we were married. On one occasion, it was when I was sick. I hoped to have out of my marriage love, warmth, affection, and understanding. But the relationship was mostly one of coldness and indifference. This is what I alluded to with mentioning earlier on in the story how her mom divorced and what she said in the court as for the reasons. However, here there are definitely witnesses as to some form of physical violence as well. So, to wrap up on Joey, after that, after the divorce, he would even hire people to keep tabs on her, to just stalk her, to see what she was doing, so another lawsuit followed. But Marilyn always kept Joey on the side, and he never really fully gave up on her. He was there even after she was to marry and then divorce Arthur Miller. He was always supportive of her, probably more of her as a person rather than her career. And in the last few years of Marilyn's life, in 61 and 62, they would also meet up a couple of times. Some people would say that they might have been back together. So this would be the last two years before Marilyn passed away. Susan Stressberg, the drama coach, would say that Marilyn was getting out of relationships that were not good for her and back into one that was. She knew she needed some sort of emotional and spiritual anchor. A note to Joey would also be found in the address book when Marilyn had been found dead. And the note wouldn't be finished, but it would read, Dear Joey, if I can only succeed in making you happy, I will have succeeded in the biggest and most difficult thing there is. That is, to make one person completely happy. Your happiness means my happiness. And
by all accounts, Joey was there for Marilyn, and he came to her assistance one last time. After her death, he organized her funeral, he issued invites, arranged a ceremony, and even enlisted Marilyn's half-sister, Bernice, to help. For the rest of his life, he kept out of the public eye, he lived nicely from his baseball retirement package, and he died in Florida in 1999, five months after an operation from lung cancer. But truly, with Joey, why I keep saying that this is like a full circle of a surrogate father relationship, that this is the full circle of, I don't know, accomplishment of daddy issues, if I have ever seen one, is because he was always there, and Marilyn still remained in touch with him. And people say, like, he was a bad husband, but he was a good friend to Marilyn. And I don't know, I think there is something in that, because I have never seen that in any of the stories, where she did, in a way, find the surrogate father relationship, but it remained that. It just maybe should have never ended in a marriage, because he might have actually been just a good friend, or just even, yeah, a surrogate father figure, because he was older than her to Marilyn. But back to the watershed moment in our timeline. In December of 1954, shortly after the seven-year itch shoot was done, Marilyn would actually try to step away from Hollywood. Not that she would do this successfully, but she would always keep in touch with, like, Fox, and she would try to keep the contracts going, just in terms of her getting more jobs, because she was, again, a really smart business person. So, she formed, with a photographer called Milton Green, Marilyn Monroe Productions. Marilyn's function would be to star in the films selected by the company, and Milton Green was to conduct all of the business and also pay all of the bills. They had equal shares, like she controlled 51 shares of the company, and Green retained the remaining 50. And this would lead her to leave Hollywood. This would lead to a one-year legal battle with Fox Studios in 1955, because they would be claiming that they are just tied up with her in this contract for the production of Seven Year Itch, but they're really just trying to get rid of her, and they try to generate bad publicity about her to make sure that no other studio would want to hire her, and obviously she wanted to have other jobs, so she was trying to get out of there and sue them for defamation, for doing that. And also she left Hollywood because she was tired of the same old sex roles that she was getting. And she said that Fox never actually paid her for the promised bonus, and that the studios just weren't fulfilling their duties. So, this is when her publicity is all over the place, and it's more bad publicity, really, than the good one, because she kind of started being ridiculed. She wanted to try more daring roles. She actually still had interest in Russian literature and Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov, but she was ridiculed for her ambitions here, being like, you can't even pronounce the leading female character's name. She was ridiculed for starting her own company. She was ridiculed for ever deciding to leave Fox, like, one of the biggest production studios at the time. Like, how is she ever going to get a job? So, to prove people wrong, and really striving towards proving how perfect she is, Marilyn focused on upskilling and also therapy. 
So this is when, after founding MMP, her production company, she would move to Manhattan and spend 1955 studying acting. She would take different classes, different workshops on method acting at the actor's studio. She grew closer to Strasberg, to her drama coach, and also would get private lessons due to her shyness. And soon these people would really become family to Marilyn. Marilyn's career spanned for 16 years. During the first eight that we have covered so far, between 47 and 54, she appeared in 24 productions. During the second half, so between 55 and 62, she appeared in only five. And this definitely wasn't because of the loss of her popularity. Rather, it would be put down to laziness, to alcohol and drug addiction, and psychological problems that led to self-destruction. Most serious out of all of the ones I mentioned would be her addiction to sleeping pills. It began innocently around this time, in 1954, during the period of her routine insomnia, because she was traveling so much, so this was due to jet lag, to begin with. But then she would just constantly get another supply of sleeping pills. And the pills would be handed out to her in generous free samples from Sidney Skolsky, who had unlimited access to them. When she was still married to Joey, he referred to Sidney and Marilyn as pill pals, like pen pals, but just pill pals, because they would constantly be dependent on these pills as they would travel. Sidney Skolsky was, I don't know if I mentioned, was the gossip columnist, but... Kind of like with paparazzi and stars today, Marilyn always had her on standby. She always was liaising with her. Sydney was always on. Sydney was always by her side, and they would sometimes yes take pills together. And you know, at first, excuses were jet lag, anxiety on set. Marilyn was quite anxious, but then you know, calming her nerves. There were no excuses after some time, and it really affected who Marilyn was on set, especially now when she had her own studio, she had her own career to build. Sometimes people would say, like, she would have sleepless nights or just take the pills in the middle of the night, and she would start complaining how they were ineffective, because after taking them for so many years, starting from this point on, she would develop quite a tolerance to them but she would sometimes not even wake up in time for the shoot. She would come to the film shoot after midnight. She would come to the film shoot after noon and wouldn't even be aware of the time because the pills would only start wearing off in the morning when she would finally get up. What people would later say about her pill taking is that she didn't do it for frills. Like, she didn't do it just as people do certain drugs or alcohol, and that she wasn't actually dependent on alcohol. It would be mostly pills that would be prescribed to her or that she would get a supply from. And that this was rather in order for her to combat her crippling inability to sleep to calm her nerves, to tackle her debilitating fear and anxieties which assailed her. Once the addictive spiral would begin, she would start to take yet more pills to counteract the effects of other drugs that she had taken, because now she had to take something to wake up and be as alive on the set as they needed her to be. 
This would mean that sometimes she would even come into her friend's flats in the middle of the night, completely sleepless and disheveled, complaining that her sleeping pills, for which she developed tolerance at this point, were ineffective. And something yet again to draw attention to here when it comes to mental health would be the lack of public records that would be shared here, which becomes really relevant in part two of this story. But here we know of about two drugs that were actually given to Marilyn. So we don't even know about what she was actually taking, what she was prescribed, what she was given, what the mix of those drugs, what kind of effects they would have on her system. We don't really know that information. And especially when she now starts actually seeing psychotherapists, when she actually starts getting therapists, that becomes even more important because what were they prescribing? Were they aware of what she was taking on her own accord and how those drugs are combined? Because this would truly be 1954 onwards, the beginning of her demise. And you really have to see this now through the lens of, well, Arthur Miller that I'm going to put you in for a second, but even through Marilyn's eyes, everything is just hazy from this point on. She is in constant dependence on the medication and everything is just spiraling out of her control. The book states on this, from this time to the end of Marilyn's life, there would be just such a lack of communication between therapists and physicians. Some of them more benevolent, better qualified, less manipulative than others, but all of them acting independently. Each saw Marilyn Monroe as his or her responsibility. Each had a proud proprietary claim. Each readily assumed the superior role from which Marilyn, in her quest for independence and maturity, was to have been freed. But she was, after all, simply too valuable a patient. As I mentioned, Marilyn now, you know, moving away from Hollywood or trying to step away and do her own thing, was really focusing on upskilling, on getting classes in drama coaching, and she was also focusing on therapy. So, what took over the psychotherapy, which she was getting at this time, in 1955 were talks of nightmares, loneliness, childhood, absent parents, her early marriage, her resentment for Grace Goddard, her time selling herself in order to survive, really, and her resentment against Fox. According to the author of the book, that was another reason why Marilyn only worked on five productions in her later life, because she tried to work more often and more deeply in her own personal life. Constantly dressing and undressing, reviewing, repainting, drawing once again the lip and brow lines, washing and recommencing the application of a new look on a new face. She lived in a perpetual state of self-criticism, ever trying and retrying to focus some unrealized image of an unfinished self. As part of her further work on herself, she expressed further interest in Russian culture, again reading Dostoevsky, mentioning in the interviews how interested she would be to play one such role or adaptations of any of their writings. And she would get invited to National Arts Foundation, where she was asked to travel to Moscow, to lead the contingent of American artists discussing an exchange of Western and Russian culture. Now, she accepted this and started applying for Russian visa, but due to the Cold War, due to the bureaucracy at the time, this was delayed. 
And this would be around the same time that she was also supporting Arthur Miller in front of the committee. She was publicly supporting somebody who might or might not have been considered to be a communist. Her support of Arthur Miller and also her wishes to possibly go to Russia would be what eventually got the FBI to open a file on her. As documents later declassified revealed, the FBI was vigilant to the point of obsession regarding anyone's travels that could be dangerous to the national interest by virtue of past communist sympathy. Marilyn's FBI files would track her departure from Hollywood, relocation with the Greens in Connecticut, friendship with Arthur Miller, studies at the actor's studio, and requests to travel to Russia. And J. Edgar Hoover would heavily demand every travel plan by any celebrity out of the country to be monitored. At this point, Miller's professional achievements, as we mentioned, were seen as him being supporter of the Russians. And considering the public sentiment of the time, this just wasn't great. When the Monroe-Miller marriage was subsequently rumored to be inevitable, people would say the next stop for Miller is trouble. The House Un-American Activities Committee subpoena will check into his entire inner circle which also happens to be in a circle of Miss Monroe, and all of them are former communist sympathizers. Last time Marilyn and Arthur have been publicly seen, have been associated publicly, would be in 1951. And Arthur Miller was, at that point, more famous than Marilyn Monroe. Her breakthrough years only came really after that, between 52 and 56. He had just won a Pulitzer Prize for Death of a Salesman and was enjoying a celebrity that most writers can only write about. Monroe was still a star on the rise and she was just famous for her supporting roles. They parted ways for several years, Marilyn got married, got divorced, and Miller tried to work on his marriage with his wife Mary, but eventually it was rumored that an affair began when Arthur was still married. So, in 1956, Miller moves, he establishes a residence in Nevada, he is finally granted a divorce, and not long after, he and Marilyn actually got married. Milton Green, Marilyn's business partner and a photographer, the other half of the Marilyn Monroe Productions, would say, well, what does this mean for the production company? Did his love come with some financial interest? So, to drop you into the point of view of Arthur Miller, in my personal opinion, he saw her the way he thought she wanted to be seen. The important emphasis on the way he thought she wanted to be seen. I don't think Arthur Miller ever saw Marilyn for who she really was, that he ever really tried to love her and understand what she really wanted from life. I think that he was just one of the people who exploited her. And unlike Natasha, I do not have the same amount of respect for Arthur, mostly for what we are going to be speaking about in part two. However, it's easy to see, even superficially, why somebody like Arthur Miller would want to be with the sex symbol that is Marilyn Monroe, who is at the height of her career right now. He waited for a couple of years, got divorced, started an affair, and she was suddenly probably a lot more famous than he really is. So, what was Marilyn's point of view? 
that really people couldn't understand. And the consensus on this, especially at this point in Marilyn's career, is that she wanted to be seen as a serious actress, and he could really provide that for her. She was a win for him, just in terms of the looks, just in terms of the appearance, but for her, this was purely about being seen as a serious actress partnered with a renowned playwright. During his hearing in front of the committee, Arthur asked for his passport to be returned, because he planned to marry Marilyn Monroe. So, on June the 29th, Marilyn and Miller were married in New York. Two days after, they had a Jewish ceremony, because to marry him, she had to convert to Judaism. And that, according to multiple articles online, made sure that some of her movies aren't shown in certain countries, like Egypt. So, under her new now contract with Fox, she started releasing other movies. But as we know, there would only be few movies here and there. Bus Stop would be released in 1956, and it immediately became a commercial success. She received a Golden Globe for Best Actress nomination for her performance. And in terms of the MMP, her own production studios, she began filming the first MMP independent production called The Prince and the Showgirl. At this point, she was increasingly known as somebody who was hard to work with. People really weren't as tolerant to her on the set. They knew about certain dependencies when it came to the drugs that she was taking, but what they might not have known, or rather they would learn through the press, would be just Marilyn's desire to have children and inability to have them. All three of Marilyn's pregnancies would reportedly be fathered by Arthur Miller, to whom she was married between 56 and 61 at different stages throughout these years. And she would miscarry twice, and one pregnancy would just end up in a termination. This would be, in my opinion, and the opinion of Donald Spoto, what truly affected Marilyn. Her inability to have the kids, constantly not feeling as this complete person, and also blaming herself and her use of drugs and sleeping pills on that, on the miscarriages that she ended up having. Arthur really wasn't as helpful. He would be controlling and would get in the way of her work, would be constant presence on the shoes that she was doing for any movies, and really wasn't trying to make her feel any better, at least in my opinion. There is a famous letter that he wrote to her that's kind of like hot and steamy in the early years that is published online, and even the comments on those letters, just by briefly reading a paragraph, I was like, I'm sick to my stomach, I don't want to read the rest of this. It seems like he was the guy who would love Bomber, who would constantly have to be that presence, like, have constant control over her, fully understand her. He kind of saw her as this puzzle that had to be understood. We're gonna develop more on that in part two. But just personally, I don't think this was the healthiest relationship out of them all. In between 1957 and 59, Marilyn also decided to take about 18-month hiatus to concentrate on the family life. She really wanted to be a wife, and she really wanted to be a mother. So, her day-to-day -day now is getting psychotherapy from this woman called Marianne Chris, who is just trying to get her to process her childhood, all of the relationships in her life 
to see them for what it really is, but it means reliving everything that Marilyn had been through, which, as we know, was quite traumatic and would have been quite traumatic for everybody. She's desperate to have a child, she has yet another pregnancy that doesn't go anywhere in between this time, that rather ends up in a miscarriage, and her relationship with Milton Green also isn't the best, because now, while well, she's taking a hiatus, she really isn't making any movies. Her memories at this time were vague and disconnected, and she was still relying heavily on sleeping pills. So, at this point, she's surrounded by husband who approached her as a child. She was taking steps to control her business, she was surrounded by an analyst who treated her as a girl who buried her past, the psychoanalyst, the therapist that she was going to, and it was just difficult for Marilyn Monroe to adult and to move on. What this would lead to, unsurprisingly, would be that she began to worry even more about herself and about her own abilities. Arthur would be on set, and she would break down when she would be asked to sing, things that she was extremely confident about before, and wouldn't know how to deal with Arthur or say no where she would have done with Joy, for example, with her ex-husband. This would eventually lead her to break off the business relationship with Green. In short, Marilyn Monroe was spiraling. She had another loss of the child in August of 1957, and she saw this as even her body indicting that she was not ready for adulthood. As she is spiraling, there's an idea that is popping in Arthur Miller's head that we are not yet privy to, and Marilyn isn't either, but as somebody who is following her husband's career as well, she noticed The Misfits, which was the short story that was written by Miller, published in Esquire, and the critics saying that it would make for a green screenplay. This would be the story of three wandering men in the wilds of Nevada who capture wild horses to be butchered for canned dog food, and there would be an unsettled woman at the center of it. Before Misfits, however, before Arthur actually suggested it to her and this production began, in 1958 she returns to Hollywood with a hit called Some Like It Hot. This film production since then would be one of Marilyn's famous ones. It would be called Legendary. Marilyn's own behavior on set was just as we know it. She was said that she wasn't able to remember the lines, probably knowing the history now because of the pill intake, that she would have dozens of retakes, and that Arthur became just another authority that she had to please. He was a constant presence on set. And he could no longer tolerate this, because, of course, why take a healthy approach and see that the wife actually gets the therapy and not, like, takes in so many pills that have been prescribed or not to her? Rather, he saw her as a spoiled person. And this time, all of those bad habits would show. So, he was humiliated by her childish behavior. This would lead to yet another and the last pregnancy that Marilyn would have. It would be the last time that she tried to be a mother, and this pregnancy would have complications and would have to end in a termination. Here, she fully, 100% blamed herself, as she was taking sleeping pills and tranquilizers at the time. So, Marilyn Monroe entered 1959 in depression. She would be taking depressants called amytal and nembutal. 
these are for now the only ones that we know she was actually prescribed. So now, with a more vicious circle of insomnia, drug-induced sleep, she is taking the depressants on top of those as well. She would still go to Chris, to the therapist, and this would just further set her into depression. Her confidence would only be mildly boosted with a Golden Globe for Best Actress for Some Like It Hot, for the movie that she did a year before. In 1959, she would also star in another musical comedy called Let's Make Love. However, in her personal life, she was just truly lost at this point. She was unsure what to do with Arthur Miller, and at this point, she had already at least five years on dependency on drugs and sleeping pills. To really help me understand this, I have done some research, rather just brief Google searches, about like how long it would actually take to shoot a movie, and the average length of the movie shoots would be about three months. So we know she was in 33 productions, just movie-wise. Basically meaning that she would have spent seven years, over seven years actually, just on sets. Just on sets, not even like modeling, not doing press releases, not doing anything else. So Obviously, this kind of, when you see it through that lens, would explain why somebody might resort to pills, to drugs, something different as like a coping mechanism. But also would explain maybe like her state of mind at this time, after years of dependency, of trying to just cope, cope with her insecurities when on those sets for 24-7, for like seven years, of her life, of a really short life, if you're really to think about it, with people just demanding things off of her. I just, like, you just, when you put it into perspective, Marilyn didn't deal well with silence, with being idle. So, anytime that she would, it would be when resorting to pills. And you have to think about how this actually looked like day to day. It would just be her waking up, getting up from the haze, probably taking something to make herself be able to push through the day, going on set and then going back home, doing a press release, interview, whatever it would be, and then just resulting to more pills. And it just, when you think about that, for that amount of time, for at least five to six years at this point, just think about like what that does to your brain and to the quality of the life that you're leading even minus Miller in this equation, even if she wasn't to be seeing anybody, even if everything else in her life was to have been perfect, just the dependency on the pills now would have already led to self-destruction. The musical comedy Let's Make Love wasn't really getting great reviews. It was quite unsuccessful when it was released in 1960. And 1960 would also be one of the first times in Marilyn's life when she actually publicly expressed her views on politics. She, as we know, tried to upskill in different areas, and she tried to improve her political literacy, meaning that she accepted a position of alternative delegate to the 5th Congressional District. And this letter would be written to a New York Times editor that she met in 1959, expressing concerns of that year's elections. I'll put it on the screen and I'll just read like a couple of lines from it. Ideally, Justice William O. Douglas would be the best president. And how about Kennedy for vice president? But they couldn't win because Douglas is divorced. 
I don't know anything about Kennedy. Maybe this ticket is hopeless, too, but it would be nice to see Stevenson as Secretary of State. This letter would conclude with slogans for late 1960. And as the summer of 1960 began, she would describe herself tersely. I am 34 years old. I've been dancing for six months in Let's Make Love. I've had no rest. I'm exhausted. Where do I go from here? Where Marilyn would go from there is into her last movie role, controlled by Miller, while her personal life will be controlled by her last psychoanalyst and her private life by a new housekeeper. Those will be the points of view we have to get to next week, with one of those individuals, according to the author of the book, being a better suspect in the suspicious death of Marilyn Monroe than the president himself. And that is where I'm leaving part one, which might be my longest one yet. This has been hours, guys. Yes, this isn't even funny anymore. It's 13 degrees here in London. 13, not one free. They see, they see you sweat. So in the next part, in part two, we will be talking about the end of Marilyn's life, 1961 and 62 in particular, how Kennedy's fit into that timeline, her death, the night of her death, in particular, will be the focus of part two, and especially the other two points of view that I have to put you through. One of them being yet another doctor, therapist, psychoanalyst, he's a piece of work, and the other one being a housekeeper that worked for Marilyn. And then in part three, we're going to be focusing on conspiracy theories in the inquiry into her death, and are there any basis of actually considering one of the Kennedys as the suspect, or are there better suspects, as maybe that book suggests? The better suspects will be heavily discussed in part two, so stick around. I shall be back, hopefully in one week's time, with another video, and then part three will be released a week from that. God damn it, I'm gonna get scoliosis, motherfuckers. So, what are your thoughts so far, having heard about so many points of view and just her childhood and the context of this story? Do you agree with me that every single person, <coughs> mostly Grace, exploited the living shit out of Marilyn? Or do you disagree? Did I miss out on somebody who you think was really a prevalent figure in Marilyn's life? Would you have put me and others in the shoes of somebody else? What are your thoughts in general? on Marilyn, her career, her spiraling, and then, after that, after ruminating on that, leaving those comments, I shall be seeing you next week with another, probably two hours, hopefully less, of a story of Arthur Miller and Misfits. That's how we begin. Trust me, it's not nice. It's not nice. I will not be pleasant towards this man. I will never be pleasant towards any man, really, in Marilyn's story, because all of them exploited the shit out of her. It's such a sad life, and it just doesn't get any better from now on. And then, boy, that book, the ending of that book is in itself a conspiracy theory. I'm just gonna say that. There might be a better suspect, suspects, to Marilyn's death and the night of their thoughts is just suspicious as hell. And I was like, I didn't know any of this. I had no idea of any of this. That's a teaser for you for next week. Now, yet again, I shall be editing this, showering, 
not losing my mind over this case. And if you know somebody who is interested in Marilyn's story, make sure you like, subscribe and share this with them. Introduce me to other people who like deep dives. Do it for me, please. It takes so, so much time and I love doing it, but it takes so, so much time to read a book, to script it, to sit down, to record it, to edit it. I walk them through everything. <laughs> Such a real shit. Just walk them through every single part of the process. I'm out. This is already a four hour long video. Be out. Also, don't worry about the lamp, by the way. It won't burn the house down. Like, the light bulb just doesn't get heated. I don't know what science that is inside of there, but uh, it just doesn't get heated. So, don't worry about that. I know that that's not really stable. <sighs> just get up. Just get up. I'm not gonna put the house on fire. Imagine, though. That would be sick background. No, it wouldn't. It would die. My out. <laughs> See you next week. Be a sick background, you'll literally be on fire. Oh my god, and the, the camera. The footage wouldn't survive because the whole room would be ablaze. I know, guys, yeah, act normal, act normal, act normal. Uh, nothing, you have heard nothing, you heard nothing.